Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 22 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On one of the first days of May, some six months after old Mr. Touchett's death, a small group that might have been described by a painter as composing well was gathered in one of the many rooms of an ancient villa crowning an olive-muffled hill outside of the Roman gate of Florence. The villa was a long, rather blank-looking structure, with the far-projecting roof which Tuscany loves, and which, on the hills that encircle Florence, when considered from a distance, makes so harmonious a rectangle with the straight, dark, definite cypresses that usually rise in groups of three or four beside it. The house had a front upon a little grassy, empty, rural piazza, which occupied a part of the hilltop. And this front, pierced with a few windows in irregular relations and furnished with a stone bench, lengthily adjusted to the base of the structure, and useful as a lounging-place to one or two persons wearing more or less of that air of undervalued merit which in Italy, for some reason or other, always gracefully invests any one who confidently assumes a perfectly passive attitude. This antique, solid, weather-worn, yet imposing front had a somewhat incommunicative character. It was the mask, not the face, of the house. It had heavy lids, but no eyes. The house in reality looked another way, looked off behind, into splendid openness and the range of the afternoon light. In that quarter the villa overhung the slope of its hill and the long valley of the Arno, hazy with Italian colour. It had a narrow garden, in the manner of a terrace, productive chiefly of tangles of wild roses and other old stone benches, mossy and sun-warmed. The parapet of the terrace was just the height to lean upon, and beneath it the ground declined into the vagueness of olive crops and vineyards. It is not, however, with the outside of the place that we are concerned. On this bright morning of ripened spring, its tenants had reason to prefer the shady side of the wall. The windows of the ground floor, as you saw them from the piazza, were, in their noble proportions, extremely architectural, but their function seemed less to offer communication with the world than to defy the world to look in. They were massively cross-barred, and placed at such a height that curiosity, even on tiptoe, expired before it reached them. In an apartment lighted by a row of three of these jealous apertures, one of the several distinct apartments into which the villa was divided, 
and which were mainly occupied by foreigners of random race long resident in florence a gentleman was seated in company with a young girl and two good sisters from a religious house the room was however less sombre than our indications may have represented for it had a wide high door which now stood open into the tangled garden behind and the tall iron lattices admitted on occasion more than enough of the italian sunshine it was moreover a seat of ease indeed of luxury telling of arrangements subtly studied and refinements frankly proclaimed and containing a variety of those faded hangings of damask and tapestry those chests and cabinets of carved and time-polished oak those angular specimens of pictorial art in frames as pedantically primitive those perverse-looking relics of medieval brass and pottery of which italy has long been the not quite exhausted storehouse these things kept terms with articles of modern furniture in which large allowance had been made for a lounging generation it was to be noticed that all the chairs were deep and well padded and that much space was occupied by a writing-table of which the ingenious perfection bore the stamp of london and the nineteenth century there were books in profusion and magazines and newspapers and a few small odd elaborate pictures chiefly in water-colour one of these productions stood on a drawing-room easel before which at the moment we begin to be concerned with her the young girl i have mentioned had placed herself she was looking at the picture in silence silence absolute silence had not fallen upon her companions but their talk had an appearance of embarrassed continuity the two good sisters had not settled themselves in their respective chairs their attitude expressed a final reserve and their faces showed the glaze of prudence they were plain ample mild-featured women with a kind of business-like modesty to which the impersonal aspect of their stiffened linen and of the serge that draped them as if nailed on frames gave an advantage one of them a person of a certain age in spectacles with a fresh complexion and a full cheek had a more discriminating manner than her colleague as well as the responsibility of their errand which apparently related to the young girl this object of interest wore her hat an ornament of extreme simplicity and not at variance with her plain muslin gown too short for her years though it must already have been let out the gentleman who might have been supposed to be entertaining the two nuns was perhaps conscious of the difficulties of his function it being in its way as arduous to converse with the very meek as with the very mighty at the same time he was clearly much occupied with their quiet charge and while she turned her back to him his eyes rested gravely on her slim small figure he was a man of forty with a high but well-shaped head on which the hair still dense but prematurely grizzled had been cropped close he had a fine narrow extremely modelled and composed face of which the only fault was just this effect of its running a trifle too much to points an appearance to which the shape of the beard contributed not a little this beard cut in the manner of the portraits of the sixteenth century and surmounted by a fair moustache of which the ends had a romantic upward flourish gave its wearer a foreign traditionary look and suggested that he was a gentleman who studied style his conscious curious eyes however eyes at once vague and penetrating intelligent and hard expressive of the observer as well as of the dreamer 
would have assured you that he studied it only within well-chosen limits, and that in so far as he sought it, he found it. You would have been much at a loss to determine his original clime and country. He had none of the superficial signs that usually render the answer to this question an insipidly easy one. If he had English blood in his veins, it had probably received some French or Italian commixture. But he suggested, fine gold coin as he was, no stamp or emblem of the common mintage that provides for general circulation. He was the elegant, complicated metal, struck off for a special occasion. He had a light, lean, rather languid-looking figure, and was apparently neither tall nor short. He was dressed as a man dresses who takes little trouble other about it than to have no vulgar things. "'Well, my dear, what do you think of it?' he asked of the young girl. He used the Italian tongue, and used it with perfect ease, but this would not have convinced you he was Italian. The child turned her head earnestly to one side and the other. "'It's very pretty, papa. Did you make it yourself?' "'Certainly I made it. Don't you think I'm clever?' "'Yes, papa, very clever. I also have learned to make pictures.' And she turned round and showed a small, fair face painted with a fixed and intensely sweet smile. "'You should have brought me a specimen of your powers.' "'I've brought a great many. They're in my trunk.' she draws very very carefully the elder of the nuns remarked speaking in french i'm glad to hear it is it you who have instructed her happily no said the good sister blushing a little ce n'est pas ma partie i teach nothing i leave that to those who are wiser we've an excellent drawing-master mr mr what is his name she asked of her companion her companion looked about at the carpet. "'It's a German name,' she said in Italian, as if it needed to be translated. "'Yes,' the other went on. "'He's a German, and we've had him many years.' The young girl, who was not heeding the conversation, had wandered away to the open door of the large room, and stood looking into the garden. "'And you, my sister, are French,' said the gentleman. "'Yes, sir,' the visitor gently replied. "'I speak to the pupils in my own tongue. I know no other. But we have sisters of other countries—English, German, Irish. They all speak their proper language.' The gentleman gave a smile. "'Has my daughter been under the care of one of the Irish ladies?' And then, as he saw that his visitors suspected a joke, though failing to understand it, "'You're very complete.' he instantly added. "'Oh, yes, we're complete. We've everything, and everything's of the best.' "'We have gymnastics,' the Italian sister ventured to remark. "'But not dangerous.' "'I hope not. Is that your branch?' A question which provoked much candid hilarity on the part of the two ladies, on the subsistence of which their entertainer, glancing at his daughter, remarked that she had grown. "'Yes, but I think she has finished. She'll remain uh, not big,' said the French sister. "'I'm not sorry. I prefer women like books. Very good, and not too long.' "'But I know,' the gentleman said, "'no particular reason why my child should be short.' 
the nun gave a temperate shrug as if to intimate that such things might be beyond our knowledge she's in very good health that's the best thing yes she looks sound and the young girl's father watched her a moment what do you see in the garden he asked in french i see many flowers she replied in a sweet small voice and with an accent as good as his own yes but not many good ones however such as they are go out and gather some for ces dames the child turned to him with her smile heightened by pleasure may i truly ah when i tell you said her father the girl glanced at the elder of the nuns may i truly ma mère obey monsieur your father my child said the sister blushing again the child satisfied with this authorization descended from the threshold and was presently lost to sight you don't spoil them said her father gaily for everything they must ask leave that's our system leave is freely granted but they must ask it oh i don't quarrel with your system i've no doubt it's excellent i sent you my daughter to see what you'd make of her i had faith one must have faith the sister blandly rejoined gazing through her spectacles well has my faith been rewarded what have you made of her the sister dropped her eyes a moment a good christian monsieur her host dropped his eyes as well but it was probable that the movement had in each case a different spring yes and what else he watched the lady from the convent probably thinking she would say that a good christian was everything but for all her simplicity she was not so crude as that a charming young lady a real little woman a daughter in whom you'll have nothing but contentment she seems to me very gentille said the father she's really pretty she's perfect she has no faults she never had any as a child and i'm glad you have given her none we love her too much said the spectacled sister with dignity and as for faults how can we give what we have not le couvent n'est pas comme le monde monsieur she's our daughter as you say we've had her since she was so small of all those we shall lose this year she's the one we shall miss most the younger woman murmured deferentially ah yes we shall talk long of her said the other we shall hold her up to the new ones and at this the good sister appeared to find her spectacles dim while her companion after fumbling a moment presently drew forth a pocket-handkerchief of durable texture it's not certain you'll lose her nothing settled yet their host rejoined quickly not as if to anticipate their tears but in the tone of a man saying what was most agreeable to himself we should be very happy to believe that fifteen is very young to leave us oh exclaimed the gentleman with more vivacity than he had yet used it is not i who wish to take her away i wish you could keep her always ah monsieur said the elder sister smiling and getting up good as she is she's made for the world le monde y gagnera if all the good people were hidden away in convents how would the world get on her companion softly inquired rising also 
this was a question of a wider bearing than the good woman apparently supposed and the lady in spectacles took a harmonizing view by saying comfortably fortunately there are good people everywhere if you're going there will be two less here her host remarked gallantly for this extravagant sally his simple visitors had no answer and they simply looked at each other in decent deprecation but their confusion was speedily covered by the return of the young girl with two large bunches of roses one of them all white the other red i give you your choice mamma catherine said the child it's only the colour that's different mamma justine there are just as many roses in one bunch as in the other the two sisters turned to each other smiling and hesitating with which will you take and no it's for you to choose i'll take the red thank you said catherine in the spectacles i'm so red myself they'll comfort us on our way back to rome ah they won't last cried the young girl i wish i could give you something that would last you've given us a good memory of yourself my daughter that will last i wish nuns could wear pretty things i would give you my blue beads the child went on and do you go back to rome to-night her father inquired yes we take the train again we've so much to do la bas are you not tired we are never tired ah my sister sometimes murmured the junior votaress not to-day at any rate we have rested too well here que dieu vous garde ma fine their host while they exchanged kisses with his daughter went forward to open the door through which they were to pass but as he did so he gave a slight exclamation and stood looking beyond the door opened into a vaulted antechamber as high as a chapel and paved with red tiles and into this antechamber a lady had just been admitted by a servant a lad in shabby livery who was now ushering her toward the apartment in which our friends were grouped the gentleman at the door after dropping his exclamation remained silent in silence too the lady advanced he gave her no further audible greeting and offered her no hand but stood aside to let her pass into the saloon at the threshold she hesitated is there any one she asked someone you may see she went in and found herself confronted with the two nuns and their pupil who was coming forward between them with a hand in the arm of each at the sight of the new visitor they all paused and the lady who had also stopped stood looking at them the young girl gave a little soft cry ah madame merle the visitor had been slightly startled but her manner in the next instant was none the less gracious yes it's madame merle come to welcome you home and she held out two hands to the girl who immediately came up to her presenting her forehead to be kissed madame merle saluted this portion of her charming little person and then stood smiling at the two nuns they acknowledged her smile with a decent obeisance but permitted themselves no direct scrutiny of this imposing brilliant woman who seemed to bring in with her something of the radiance of the outer world these ladies have brought my daughter home and now they return to the convent the gentleman explained ah you go back to rome i've lately come from there it's very lovely now said madame merle the good sisters standing with their hands folded into their sleeves accepted this statement uncritically 
and the master of the house asked his new visitor how long it was since she had left Rome. "'She came to see me at the convent,' said the young girl, before the lady addressed had time to reply. "'I've been more than once, Pansy,' Madame Merle declared. "'Am I not your great friend in Rome?' "'I remember the last time best,' said Pansy, "'because you told me I should come away.' "'Did you tell her that?' the child's father asked. "'I hardly remember. I told her what I thought would please her. I've been in Florence a week. I hoped you would come to see me.' "'I should have done so if I had known you were there. One doesn't know such things by inspiration, though I suppose one ought. You had better sit down.' These two speeches were made in a particular tone of voice, a tone half-lowered and carefully quiet, but as from habit rather than from any definite need. Madame Merle looked about her, choosing her seat. "'You're going to the door with these women? Let me, of course, not interrupt the ceremony. "'Je vous salue, mesdames,' she said in French to the nuns, as if to dismiss them. "'This lady's a great friend of ours. You will have seen her at the convent,' said their entertainer. We've much faith in her judgment, and she'll help me to decide whether my daughter shall return to you at the end of the holidays. "'I hope you'll decide in our favour, madame,' the sister in spectacles ventured to remark. "'That's Mr. Osmond's pleasantry. I decide nothing,' said madame Merle, but also as in pleasantry. "'I believe you have a very good school. But Miss Osmond's friends must remember that she's very naturally meant for the world.' "'That's what I've told monsieur,' Sister Catherine answered. "'It's precisely to fit her for the world,' she murmured, glancing at Pansy, who stood at a little distance, attentive to Madame Merle's elegant apparel. "'Do you hear that, Pansy? You're very naturally meant for the world,' said Pansy's father. The child fixed him an instant with her pure young eyes. "'Am I not meant for you, papa?' Papa gave a quick, light laugh. "'That doesn't prevent it. I'm of the world, Pansy.' "'Kindly permit us to retire,' said Sister Catherine. "'Be good and wise and happy in any case, my daughter.' "'I shall certainly come back and see you,' Pansy returned, recommencing her embraces, which were presently interrupted by Madame Merle. "'Stay with me, dear child,' she said while your father takes the good ladies to the door. Pansy stared, disappointed, yet not protesting. She was evidently impregnated with the idea of submission, which was due to any one who took the tone of authority, and she was a passive spectator in the operation of her fate. "'May I not see Maman Catherine get into the carriage?' she nevertheless asked very gently. "'It would please me better if you'd remain with me.' said Madame Merle, while Mr. Osmond and his companions, who had bowed low again to the other visitor, passed into the antechamber. "'Oh, yes, I'll stay,' Pansy answered, and she stood near Madame Merle, surrendering her little hand, which this lady took. She stared out of the window. Her eyes had filled with tears. "'I'm glad they've taught you to obey,' said Madame Merle. That's what good little girls should do. Oh, yes, I obey very well, cried Pansy with a soft eagerness, almost with boastfulness, 
as if she had been speaking of her piano playing and then she gave a faint just audible sigh madame merle holding her hand drew it across her own fine palm and looked at it the gaze was critical but it found nothing to deprecate the child's small hand was delicate and fair i hope they always see that you wear gloves she said in a moment little girls usually dislike them i used to dislike them but i like them now the child made answer very good i'll make you a present of a dozen i thank you very much what colours will they be pansy demanded with interest madame merle meditated useful colours but very pretty are you very fond of pretty things yes but but not too fond said pansy with a trace of asceticism well they won't be too pretty madame merle returned with a laugh she took the child's other hand and drew her nearer after which looking at her a moment shall you miss mother catherine she went on yes when i think of her try then not to think of her perhaps some day added madame merle you'll have another mother i don't think that's necessary pansy said repeating her soft little conciliatory sigh i had more than thirty mothers at the convent her father's step sounded again in the antechamber and madame merle got up releasing the child mr osmond came in and closed the door then without looking at madame merle he pushed one or two chairs back into their places his visitor waited a moment for him to speak watching him as he moved about then at last she said i hoped you'd have come to rome i thought it possible you'd have wished yourself to fetch pansy away that was a natural supposition but i'm afraid it's not the first time i've acted in defiance of your calculations yes said madame merle i think you very perverse mr osmond busied himself for a moment in the room there was plenty of space in it to move about in the fashion of a man mechanically seeking pretexts for not giving an attention which may be embarrassing presently however he had exhausted his pretexts there was nothing left for him unless he took up a book but to stand with his hands behind him looking at pansy why didn't you come and see the last of maman catherine he asked of her abruptly in french pansy hesitated a moment glancing at madame merle i asked her to stay with me said this lady who had seated herself again in another place ah that was better osmond conceded with which he dropped into a chair and sat looking at madame merle bent forward a little his elbows on the edge of the arms and his hands interlocked she's going to give me some gloves said pansy you needn't tell that to every one my dear madame merle observed you're very kind to her said osmond she's supposed to have everything she needs i should think she had had enough of the nuns if we're going to discuss that matter she had better go out of the room let her stay said madame merle we'll talk of something else if you like i won't listen pansy suggested with an appearance of candour which imposed conviction you may listen charming child because you won't understand her father replied 
the child sat down deferentially near the open door within sight of the garden into which she directed her innocent wistful eyes and mr osmond went on irrelevantly addressing himself to his other companion you're looking particularly well i think i always look the same said madame merle you always are the same you don't vary you're a wonderful woman yes i think i am you sometimes change your mind however you told me on your return from england that you wouldn't leave rome again for the present i'm pleased that you remember so well what i say that was my intention but i've come to florence to meet some friends who have lately arrived and as to whose movements i was at that time uncertain that reason's characteristic you're always doing something for your friends madame merle smiled straight at her host it's less characteristic than your comment upon it which is perfectly insincere i don't however make a crime of that she added because if you don't believe what you say there's no reason why you should i don't ruin myself for my friends i don't deserve your praise i care greatly for myself exactly but yourself includes so many other selves so much of every one else and of everything i never knew a person whose life touched so many other lives what do you call one's life asked madame merle one's appearance one's movements one's engagements one's society i call your life your ambitions said osmond madame merle looked a moment at pansy i wonder if she understands that she murmured you see she can't stay with us and pansy's father gave a rather joyless smile go into the garden mignon and pluck a flower or two for madame merle he went on in french that's just what i wanted to do pansy exclaimed rising with promptness and noiselessly departing her father followed her to the open door stood a moment watching her and then came back but remained standing or rather strolling to and fro as if to cultivate a sense of freedom which in another attitude might be wanting my ambitions are principally for you said madame merle looking up at him with a certain courage that comes back to what i say i'm part of your life i and a thousand others you're not selfish i can't admit that if you were selfish what should i be what epithet would properly describe me you're indolent for me that's your worst fault i'm afraid it's really my best you don't care said madame merle gravely no i don't think i care much what sort of a fault do you call that my indolence at any rate was one of the reasons i didn't go to rome but it was only one of them it's not of importance to me at least that you didn't go though i should have been glad to see you i'm glad you're not in rome now which you might be would probably be if you had gone there a month ago there's something i should like you to do at present in florence please remember my indolence said osmond i do remember it but i beg you to forget it in that way you'll have both the virtue and the reward this is not a great labour 
and it may prove a real interest how long is it since you made a new acquaintance i don't think i've made any since i made yours it's time then you should make another there's a friend of mine i want you to know mr osmond in his walk had gone back to the open door again and was looking at his daughter as she moved about in the intense sunshine what good will it do me he asked with a sort of genial crudity madame merle waited it will amuse you there was nothing crude in this rejoinder it had been thoroughly well considered if you say that you know i believe it said osmond coming toward her there are some points in which my confidence in you is complete i'm perfectly aware for instance that you know good society from bad society is all bad pardon me that isn't the knowledge i impute to you a common sort of wisdom you've gained it in the right way experimentally you've compared an immense number of more or less impossible people with each other well i invite you to profit by my knowledge to profit are you very sure that i shall it's what i hope it will depend on yourself if i could only induce you to make an effort ah there you are i knew something tiresome was coming what in the world that's likely to turn up here is worth an effort madame merle flushed as with a wounded intention don't be foolish osmond no one knows better than you what is worth an effort haven't i seen you in old days i recognize some things but they're none of them probable in this poor life it's the effort that makes them probable said madame merle there's something in that who then is your friend the person i came to florence to see she's a niece of mrs touchett whom you'll not have forgotten a niece the word niece suggests youth and ignorance i see what you're coming to yes she's young twenty-three years old she's a great friend of mine i met her for the first time in england several months ago and we struck up a grand alliance i like her immensely and i do what i don't do every day i admire her you'll do the same not if i can help it precisely but you won't be able to help it is she beautiful clever rich splendid universally intelligent and unprecedentedly virtuous it's only on those conditions that i care to make her acquaintance you know i asked you some time ago never to speak to me of a creature who shouldn't correspond to that description i know plenty of dingy people i don't want to know any more miss archer isn't dingy she's as bright as the morning she corresponds to your description it's for that i wish you to know her she fills all your requirements more or less of course no quite literally she's beautiful accomplished generous and for an american well-born she's also very clever and very amiable and she has a handsome fortune mr osmond listened to this in silence appearing to turn it over in his mind with his eyes on his informant what do you want to do with her he asked at last what you see put her in your way 
isn't she meant for something better than that i don't pretend to know what people are meant for said madame merle i only know what i can do with them i'm sorry for miss archer osmond declared madame merle got up if that's a beginning of interest in her i take note of it the two stood there face to face she settled her mantilla looking down at it as she did so you're looking very well osmond repeated still less relevantly than before you have some idea you're never so well as when you've got an idea they're always becoming to you in the manner and tone of these two persons on first meeting at any juncture and especially when they met in the presence of others was something indirect and circumspect as if they had approached each other obliquely and addressed each other by implication the effect of each appeared to be to intensify to an appreciable degree the self-consciousness of the other madame merle of course carried off any embarrassment better than her friend but even madame merle had not on this occasion the form she would have liked to have the perfect self-possession she would have wished to wear for her host the point to be made is however that at a certain moment the element between them whatever it was always levelled itself and left them more closely face to face than either ever was with any one else this was what happened now they stood there knowing each other well and each on the whole willing to accept the satisfaction of knowing as a compensation for the inconvenience whatever it might be of being known i wish very much you were not so heartless madame merle quietly said it has always been against you and it will be against you now i'm not so heartless as you think every now and then something touches me as for instance your saying just now that your ambitions are for me i don't understand it i don't see how or why they should be but it touches me all the same you'll probably understand it even less as time goes on there are some things you'll never understand there's no particular need you should you after all are the most remarkable of women said osmond you have more in you than almost any one i don't see why you think mrs touchett's niece should matter very much to me when-when but he paused a moment when i myself have mattered so little that of course is not what i meant to say when i've known and appreciated such a woman as you isabel archer's better than i said madame merle her companion gave a laugh how little you must think of her to say that do you suppose i'm capable of jealousy please answer me that with regard to me no on the whole i don't come and see me then two days hence i'm staying at mrs touchett's palazzo crescentini and the girl will be there why didn't you ask me that at first simply without speaking of the girl said osmond you could have had her there at any rate madame merle looked at him in the manner of a woman whom no question he could ever put would find unprepared do you wish to know why because i've spoken of you to her osmond frowned and turned away i'd rather not know that 
Then, in a moment, he pointed out the easel supporting the little watercolour drawing. "'Have you seen what's there? My last?' Madame Merle drew near and considered. "'Is it the Phoenician Alps? One of your last year's sketches?' "'Yes. But how you guess everything!' She looked a moment longer, then turned away. "'You know I don't care for your drawings.' "'I know it. Yet I'm always surprised at it. They're really so much better than most people's.' "'That may very well be. But as the only thing you do—well, it's so little. I should have liked you to do so many other things. Those were my ambitions.' "'Yes, you've told me many times. Things that were impossible.' "'Things that were impossible.' said madame merle and then in a quite different tone in itself your little picture's very good she looked about the room at the old cabinets pictures tapestries surfaces of faded silk your rooms at least are perfect i'm struck with that afresh whenever i come back i know none better anywhere you understand this sort of thing as nobody anywhere does you've such adorable taste "'I'm sick of my adorable taste,' said Gilbert Osmond. "'You must nevertheless let Miss Archer come and see it. I've told her about it.' "'I don't object to showing my things, when people are not idiots.' "'You do it delightfully. As Cicerone of your museum you appear to particular advantage.' Mr. Osmond, in return for this compliment, simply looked at once colder and more attentive. Did you say she was rich? She has seventy thousand pounds. En est sous bien con? There's no doubt whatever about her fortune. I've seen it, as I may say. Satisfactory woman. I mean you. And if I go to see her, shall I see the mother? The mother? She has none, nor father either. The aunt, then. Whom did you say? Mrs. Touchett. I can easily keep her out of the way. I don't object to her, said Osmond. I rather like Mrs. Touchett. She has a sort of old-fashioned character that's passing away, a vivid identity. But that long jackanapes, the son, is he about the place? He's there, but he won't trouble you. He's a good deal of a donkey. I think you're mistaken. He's a very clever man, but he's not fond of being about when I'm there, because he doesn't like me. What could he be more asinine than that? Did you say she has looks? Osmond went on. Yes, but I won't say it again, lest you should be disappointed in them. Come and make a beginning. That's all I ask of you. A beginning of what? Madame Merle was silent a little. I want you, of course, to marry her. The beginning of the end? Well, I'll see for myself. Have you told her that? For what do you take me? She's not so coarse a piece of machinery. Nor am I. Really, said Osmond, after some meditation, I don't understand your ambitions. I think you'll understand this one after you've seen Miss Archer— Suspend your judgment, Madame Merle, 
as she spoke, had drawn near the open door of the garden, where she stood a moment looking out. "'Pansy has really grown pretty,' she presently added. "'So it seemed to me.' "'But she has had enough of the convent.' "'I don't know,' said Osmond. "'I like what they've made of her. It's very charming.' "'That's not the convent. It's the child's nature.' "'It's the combination, I think. She's as pure as a pearl.' "'Why doesn't she come back with my flowers, then?' Madame Merle asked. "'She's not in a hurry.' "'We'll go and get them.' "'She doesn't like me,' the visitor murmured, as she raised her parasol, and they passed into the garden. End of chapter 22「Twenty Three of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Madame Merle, who had come to Florence on Mrs. Touchett's arrival at the invitation of this lady, Mrs. Touchett offering her for a month the hospitality of Palazzo Crescentini, the judicious Madame Merle spoke to Isabel afresh about Gilbert Osmond, and expressed the hope she might know him making, however, no such point of the matter as we have seen her do in recommending the girl herself to Mr. Osmond's attention. The reason of this was, perhaps, that Isabel offered no resistance whatever to Madame Merle's proposal. In Italy, as in England, the lady had a multitude of friends, both among the natives of the country and its heterogeneous visitors. She had mentioned to Isabel most of the people the girl would find it well to meet, of course, she said, Isabel could know whomever in the wide world she would, and had placed Mr. Osmond near the top of the list. He was an old friend of her own. She had known him these dozen years. He was one of the cleverest and most agreeable men. Well, in Europe, simply. He was altogether above the respectable average, quite another affair. He wasn't a professional charmer. Far from it and the effect he produced depended a good deal on the state of his nerves and his spirits. When not in the right mood he could fall as low as any one, saved only by his looking at such hours rather like a demoralised prince in exile. But if he cared or was interested or rightly challenged, just exactly rightly it had to be, then one felt his cleverness and his distinction. Those qualities didn't depend, in him, as in so many people, on his not committing or exposing himself. He had his perversities, which indeed Isabel would find to be the case with all the men really worth knowing, and didn't cause his light to shine equally for all persons. Madame Merle, however, thought she could undertake that for Isabel he would be brilliant. He was easily bored, too easily, and dull people always put him out but a quick and cultivated girl like Isabel would give him a stimulus which was too absent from his life. At any rate, he was a person not to miss. One shouldn't attempt to live in Italy without making a friend of Gilbert Osmond, who knew more about the country than any one except two or three German professors. And if they had more knowledge than he, it was he who had most perception and taste, being artistic through and through. Isabel remembered that her friend had spoken of him during their plunge, at Gardencourt, into the deeps of talk, and wondered a little what was the nature of the tie binding these superior spirits. 
she felt that madame merle's ties always somehow had histories and such an impression was part of the interest created by this inordinate woman as regards her relations with mr osmond however she hinted at nothing but a long-established calm friendship isabel said she should be happy to know a person who had enjoyed so high a confidence for so many years you ought to see a great many men madame merle remarked you ought to see as many as possible so as to get used to them used to them isabel repeated with that solemn stare which sometimes seemed to proclaim her deficient in the sense of comedy why i'm not afraid of them i'm as used to them as the cook to the butcher boys used to them i mean so as to despise them that's what one comes to with most of them you'll pick out for your society the few whom you don't despise this was a note of cynicism that madame merle didn't often allow herself to sound but isabel was not alarmed for she had never supposed that as one saw more of the world the sentiment of respect became the most active of one's emotions it was excited none the less by the beautiful city of florence which pleased her not less than madame merle had promised and if her unassisted perception had not been able to gauge its charms she had clever companions as priests to the mystery she was in no want indeed of aesthetic illumination for ralph found it a joy that renewed his own early passion to act as cicerone to his eager young kinswoman madame merle remained at home she had seen the treasures of florence again and again and had always something else to do but she talked of all things with remarkable vividness of memory she recalled the right-hand corner of the large perugino and the position of the hands of the saint elizabeth in the picture next to it she had her opinions as to the character of many famous works of art differing often from ralph with great sharpness and defending her interpretations with as much ingenuity as good humour isabel listened to the discussions taking place between the two with a sense that she might derive much benefit from them and that they were among the advantages she couldn't have enjoyed for instance in albany in the clear may mornings before the formal breakfast this repast at mrs touchett's was served at twelve o'clock she wandered with her cousin through the narrow and sombre florentine streets resting a while in the thicker dusk of some historic church or the vaulted chambers of some dispeopled convent she went to the galleries and palaces she looked at the pictures and statues that had hitherto been great names to her and exchanged for a knowledge which was sometimes a limitation a presentiment which proved usually to have been a blank she performed all those acts of mental prostration in which on a first visit to italy youth and enthusiasm so freely indulge she felt her heart beat in the presence of immortal genius and knew the sweetness of rising tears in eyes to which faded fresco and darkened marble grew dim but the return every day was even pleasanter than the going forth the return into the wide monumental court of the great house in which mrs touchett many years before had established herself and into the high cool rooms where the carven rafters and pompous frescoes of the sixteenth century looked down on the familiar commodities of the age of advertisement mrs touchett inhabited an historic building in a narrow street whose very name recalled the strife of medieval factions and found compensation for the darkness of her frontage in the modicity of her rent and the brightness of a garden where nature itself looked as archaic as the rugged architecture of the palace and which cleared and scented the rooms in regular use to live in such a place was for isabel 
to hold to her ear all day a shell of the sea of the past. This vague, eternal rumour kept her imagination awake. Gilbert Osmond came to see Madame Merle, who presented him to the young lady lurking at the other side of the room. Isabel took on this occasion little part in the talk. She scarcely even smiled when the others turned to her invitingly. She sat there as if she had been at the play, and had paid even a large sum for her place. Mrs. Touchett was not present, and these two had it, for the effect of brilliancy, all their own way. They talked of the Florentine, the Roman, the cosmopolite world, and might have been distinguished performers figuring for a charity. It all had the rich readiness that would have come from rehearsal. Madame Merle appealed to her as if she had been on the stage, but she could ignore any learnt cue without spoiling the scene, though of course she thus put dreadfully in the wrong the friend who had told Mr. Osmond she could be depended on. This was no matter for once. Even if more had been involved, she could have made no attempt to shine. There was something in the visitor that checked her and held her in suspense, made it more important she should get an impression of him than that she should produce one herself. Besides, she had little skill in producing an impression which she knew to be expected. Nothing could be happier in general than to seem dazzling, but she had a perverse unwillingness to glitter by arrangement. Mr. Osmond, to do him justice, had a well-bred air of expecting nothing, a quiet ease that covered everything, even the first show of his own wit. This was the more grateful, as his face, his head, was sensitive. He was not handsome, but he was fine, as fine as one of the drawings in the long gallery above the bridge of the Uffizi. And his very voice was fine, the more strangely that, with its clearness, it yet somehow wasn't sweet. This had had really to do with making her abstain from interference. His utterance was the vibration of glass, and if she had put out her finger, she might have changed the pitch and spoiled the concert. Yet before he went, she had to speak. "'Madame Merle,' he said, "'consents to come up to my hilltop some day next week and drink tea in my garden. It would give me much pleasure if you would come with her. It's thought rather pretty.' there's what they call a general view. My daughter, too, would be so glad, or rather, for she's too young to have strong emotions, I should be so glad, so very glad. And Mr. Osmond paused with a slight air of embarrassment, leaving his sentence unfinished. I should be so happy if you could know my daughter, he went on a moment afterwards. Isabel replied that she should be delighted to see Miss Osmond, in that if Madame Merle would show her the way to the hilltop, she should be very grateful. Upon this assurance the visitor took his leave, after which Isabel fully expected her friend would scold her for having been so stupid. But to her surprise that lady, who indeed never fell into the mere matter of course, said to her in a few moments, "'You were charming, my dear. You were just as one would have wished you. You're never disappointing.' A rebuke might possibly have been irritating, though it is much more probable that Isabel would have taken it in good part. But strange to say, the words that Madame Merle actually used caused her the first feeling of displeasure she had known this ally to excite. "'That's more than I intended,' she answered coldly. "'I'm under no obligation that I know of to charm Mr. Osmond.' Madame Merle perceptibly flushed, but we know it was not her habit to retract. "'My dear child, I didn't speak for him, poor man. 
I spoke for yourself. It's not, of course, a question as to his liking you. It matters little whether he likes you or not. But I thought you liked him. I did, said Isabel honestly. But I don't see what that matters either. Everything that concerns you matters to me. Madame Merle returned with her weary nobleness, especially when at the same time another old friend's concerned. Whatever Isabel's obligations may have been to Mr. Osmond, it must be admitted that she found them sufficient to lead her to put to Ralph sundry questions about him. She thought Ralph's judgments distorted by his trials, but she flattered herself that she had learned to make allowance for that. "'Do I know him?' said her cousin. "'Oh, yes, I know him. Not well, but on the whole enough. I've never cultivated his society, and he apparently has never found mine indispensable to his happiness. Who is he? What is he? He's a vague, unexplained American who has been living these thirty years, or less, in Italy. Why do I call him unexplained? Only as a cover for my ignorance. I don't know his antecedents, his family, his origin. For all I do know, he may be a prince in disguise. He rather looks like one, by the way like a prince who has abdicated in a fit of fastidiousness and has been in a state of disgust ever since. He used to live in Rome, but of late years he has taken up his abode here. I remember hearing him say that Rome has grown vulgar. He has a great dread of vulgarity. That's his special line. He hasn't any other that I know of. He lives on his income, which I suspect of not being vulgarly large. He's a poor but honest gentleman. That's what he calls himself. He married young and lost his wife, and I believe he has a daughter. He also has a sister who's married to some small count or other of these parts. I remember meeting her of old. She's nicer than he, I should think, but rather impossible. I remember there used to be some stories about her. I don't think I recommend you to know her. But why don't you ask Madame Merle about these people? She knows them all much better than I. I ask you because I want your opinion as well as hers, said Isabel. A fig for my opinion. If you fall in love with Mr. Osmond, what will you care for that? Not much, probably. But meanwhile it has a certain importance. The more information one has about one's dangers, the better. I don't agree to that. It may make them dangers. We know too much about people in these days. We hear too much. Our ears, our minds, our mouths are stuffed with personalities. Don't mind anything anyone tells you about anyone else. Judge everyone and everything for yourself. That's what I try to do, said Isabel. But when you do that, people call you conceited. You've not to mind them. That's precisely my argument. Not to mind what they say about yourself any more than what they say about your friend or your enemy. Isabel considered. I think you're right, but there are some things I can't help minding. For instance, when my friends attacked, or when I myself am praised. Of course, you're always at liberty to judge the critic. Judge people as critics, however, Ralph added, and you'll condemn them all. I shall see Mr. Osmond for myself, said Isabel. I've promised to pay him a visit. To pay him a visit? To go and see his view, his pictures, his daughter. I don't know exactly what. Madame Merle's to take me. She tells me a great many ladies call on him. Ah, with Madame Merle you may go anywhere, de confiance. 
said Ralph. She knows none but the best people. Isabel said no more about Mr. Osmond, but she presently remarked to her cousin that she was not satisfied with his tone about Madame Merle. It seems to me you insinuate things about her. I don't know what you mean, but if you've any grounds for disliking her, I think you should either mention them frankly, or else say nothing at all. Ralph, however, resented this charge with more apparent earnestness than he commonly used. I speak of Madame Merle exactly as I speak to her, with an even exaggerated respect. Exaggerated, precisely, that's what I complain of. I do so because Madame Merle's merits are exaggerated. By whom, pray? By me? If so, I do her a poor service. No, no, by herself. Oh, I protest! Isabel earnestly cried. If ever there was a woman who made small claims— You put your finger on it, Ralph interrupted. Her modesty is exaggerated. She has no business with small claims. She has a perfect right to make large ones. Her merits are large, then. You contradict yourself. Her merits are immense, said Ralph. She's indescribably blameless, a pathless desert of virtue, the only woman I know who never gives one a chance. A chance for what? Well, say to call her a fool. She's the only woman I know who has but that one little fault. Isabel turned away with impatience. I don't understand you. You're too paradoxical for my plain mind. Let me explain. When I say she exaggerates, I don't mean it in the vulgar sense, that she boasts, overstates, gives too fine an account of herself. I mean literally that she pushes the search for perfection too far, that her merits are in themselves overstrained. She's too good, too kind, too clever, too learned, too accomplished, too everything. She's too complete, in a word. I confess to you that she acts on my nerves, and that I feel about her a good deal as that intensely human Athenian felt about Aristides the Just. Isabel looked hard at her cousin, but the mocking spirit, if it lurked in his words, failed on this occasion to peep from his face. "'Do you wish Madame Merle to be banished?' "'By no means. She's much too good company. I delight in Madame Merle,' said Ralph Touchett simply. "'You're very odious, sir,' Isabel exclaimed. And then she asked him if he knew anything that was not to the honour of her brilliant friend. "'Nothing whatever. Don't you see that's just what I mean? On the character of everyone else you may find some little black speck. If I were to take half an hour to it some day, I've no doubt I should be able to find one on yours. For my own, of course, I'm spotted like a leopard. But on Madame Merle's nothing, nothing, nothing.' "'That's just what I think,' said Isabel, with a toss of her head. "'That is why I like her so much. "'She's a capital person for you to know. "'Since you wish to see the world, you couldn't have a better guide. "'I suppose you mean by that that she's worldly?' "'Worldly? No,' said Ralph. "'She's the great round world itself.' "'It had certainly not, as Isabel for the moment took it into her head to believe— been a refinement of malice in him to say that he delighted in Madame Merle. Ralph Touchett took his refreshment wherever he could find it, and he would not have forgiven himself if he had been left wholly unbeguiled by such a mistress of the social art. There are deep-lying sympathies and antipathies, and it may have been that, in spite of the administered justice she enjoyed at his hands, 
her absence from his mother's house would not have made life barren to him. But Ralph Touchett had learned more or less inscrutably to attend, and there could have been nothing so sustained to attend to as the general performance of Madame Merle. He tasted her in sips, he let her stand, with an opportuneness she herself could not have surpassed. There were moments when he felt almost sorry for her, and these, oddly enough, were the moments when his kindness was least demonstrative. He was sure she had been yearningly ambitious, and that what she had visibly accomplished was far below her secret measure. She had got herself into perfect training, but had won none of the prizes. She was always plain Madame Merle, the widow of a Swiss negotiant, with a small income and a large acquaintance, who stayed with people a great deal, and was almost as universally liked as some new volume of smooth twaddle. The contrast between this position and any one of some half-dozen others that he supposed to have at various moments engaged her hope had an element of the tragical. His mother thought he got on beautifully with their genial guest. To Mrs. Touchett's sense, two persons who dealt so largely in two ingenious theories of conduct, that is, of their own, would have much in common. He had given due consideration to Isabel's intimacy with her eminent friend, having long since made up his mind that he could not, without opposition, keep his cousin to himself. And he made the best of it, as he had done of worse things. He believed it would take care of itself, it wouldn't last forever. Neither of these two superior persons knew the other as well as she supposed, and when each had made an important discovery or two, there would be, if not a rupture, at least a relaxation. Meanwhile he was quite willing to admit that the conversation of the elder lady was an advantage to the younger, who had a great deal to learn, and would doubtless learn it better from Madame Merle than from some other instructors of the young. It was not probable that Isabel would be injured. End of chapter 23《The Portrait of a Lady》by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It would certainly have been hard to see what injury could arise to her from the visit she presently paid to Mr. Osmond's hilltop. Nothing could have been more charming than this occasion, a soft afternoon in the full maturity of the Tuscan spring. The companions drove out of the Roman gate, beneath the enormous blank superstructure which crowns the fine clear arch of that portal, and makes it nakedly impressive, and wound between high-walled lanes, into which the wealth of blossoming orchards overdrooped and flung a fragrance, until they reached the small super-urban piazza of crooked shape, where the long brown wall of the villa occupied in part by Mr. Osmond formed a principal, or at least a very imposing, object. Isabel went with her friend through a wide, high court, where a clear shadow rested below, and a pair of light-arched galleries, facing each other above, caught the upper sunshine upon their slim columns, and the flowering plants in which they were dressed. There was something grave and strong in the place. It looked somehow as if, once you were in, you would need an act of energy to get out. For Isabel, however, there was, of course, as yet no thought of getting out, but only of advancing. Mr. Osmond met her in the cold antechamber. It was cold even in the month of May, and ushered her, with her conductress, into the apartment to which we have already been introduced. Madame Merle was in front, and while Isabel lingered a little, talking with him, 
she went forward familiarly and greeted two persons who were seated in the saloon. One of these was little Pansy, on whom she bestowed a kiss. The other was a lady whom Mr. Osmond indicated to Isabel as his sister, the Countess Gemini. "'And that's my little girl,' he said, "'who has just come out of her convent.' Pansy had on a scant white dress, and her fair hair was neatly arranged in a net. She wore her small shoes tied sandal-fashion about her ankles. She made Isabel a little conventual curtsy, and then came to be kissed. The Countess Gemini simply nodded without getting up. Isabel could see she was a woman of high fashion. She was thin and dark and not at all pretty, having features that suggested some tropical bird, a long beak-like nose, small, quickly-moving eyes, and a mouth and chin that receded extremely. Her expression, however, thanks to various intensities of emphasis and wonder, of horror and joy, was not inhuman, and as regards her appearance, it was plain she understood herself and made the most of her points. Her attire, voluminous and delicate, bristling with elegance, had the look of shimmering plumage, and her attitudes were as light and sudden as those of a creature who perched upon twigs. She had a great deal of manner. Isabel, who had never known any one with so much manner, immediately classed her as the most affected of women. She remembered that Ralph had not recommended her as an acquaintance, but she was ready to acknowledge that, to a casual view, the Countess Gemini revealed no depths. Her demonstrations suggested the violent waving of some flag of general truce, white silk with fluttering streamers. "'You'll believe I'm glad to see you when I tell you it's only because I knew you were to be here that I came myself. I don't come and see my brother. I make him come and see me. This hill of his is impossible. I don't see what possesses him. Really, Osmond, you'll be the ruin of my horses some day, and if it hurts them you'll have to give me another pair. I heard them wheezing to-day. I assure you I did. It's very disagreeable to hear one's horses wheezing when one's sitting in the carriage.' It sounds, too, as if they weren't what they should be. But I've always had good horses. Whatever else I may have lacked, I've always managed that. My husband doesn't know much, but I think he knows a horse. In general, Italians don't, but my husband goes in, according to his poor light, for everything English. My horses are English, so it's all the greater pity that they should be ruined. I must tell you, she went on, directly addressing Isabel, that osmond doesn't often invite me i don't think he likes to have me it was quite my own idea coming to-day i like to see new people and i'm sure you're very new but don't sit there that chair's not what it looks there are some very good seats here but there are also some horrors these remarks were delivered with a series of little jerks and pecks of roulades of shrillness and in an accent that was as some fond recall of good english or rather of good american in adversity. "'I don't like to have you, my dear,' said her brother. "'I'm sure you're invaluable.' "'I don't see horrors anywhere,' Isabel returned, looking about her. "'Everything seems to me beautiful and precious.' "'I've a few good things,' Mr. Osmond allowed. "'Indeed, I've nothing very bad. But I've not what I should have liked.' He stood there a little awkwardly, smiling and glancing about, his manner was an odd mixture of the detached and the involved. He seemed to hint that nothing but the right values was of any consequence. Isabel made a rapid induction. 
perfect simplicity was not the badge of his family even the little girl from the convent who in her prim white dress with her small submissive face and her hands locked before her stood there as if she were about to partake of her first communion even mr osmond's diminutive daughter had a kind of finish that was not entirely artless you'd have liked a few things from the uffizi and the pitti that's what you'd have liked said madame merle poor osmond with his old curtains and crucifixes the countess gemini exclaimed she appeared to call her brother only by his family name her ejaculation had no particular object she smiled at isabel as she made it and looked at her from head to foot her brother had not heard her he seemed to be thinking what he could say to isabel won't you have some tea you must be very tired he at last bethought himself of remarking no indeed i'm not tired what have i done to tire me isabel felt a certain need of being very direct of pretending to nothing there was something in the air in her general impression of things she could hardly have said what it was that deprived her of all disposition to put herself forward the place the occasion the combination of people signified more than lay on the surface she would try to understand she would not simply utter graceful platitudes poor isabel was doubtless not aware that many women would have uttered graceful platitudes to cover the working of their observation it must be confessed that her pride was a trifle alarmed a man she had heard spoken of in terms that excited interest and who was evidently capable of distinguishing himself had invited her a young lady not lavish of her favours to come to his house now that she had done so the burden of the entertainment rested naturally on his wit isabel was not rendered less observant and for the moment we judge she was not rendered more indulgent by perceiving that mr osmond carried his burden less complacently than might have been expected what a fool i was to have let myself so needlessly in she could fancy his exclaiming to himself you'll be tired when you go home if he shows you all his bibelots and gives you a lecture on each said the countess gemini i'm not afraid of that but if i'm tired i shall at least have learned something very little i suspect but my sister is dreadfully afraid of learning anything said mr osmond oh i confess to that i don't want to know anything more i know too much already the more you know the more unhappy you are you should not undervalue knowledge before pansy who has not finished her education madame merle interposed with a smile pansy will never know any harm said the child's father pansy's a little convent flower oh the convents the convents cried the countess with a flutter of her ruffles speak to me of the convents you may learn anything there i am a convent flower myself i don't pretend to be good but the nuns do don't you see what i mean she went on appealing to isabel isabel was not sure she saw and she answered that she was very bad at following arguments the countess then declared that she herself detested arguments but that this was her brother's taste he would always discuss for me she said one should like a thing or one shouldn't one can't like everything of course but one shouldn't attempt to reason it out you never know where it may lead you there are some very good feelings that may have bad reasons don't you know and then there are very bad feelings sometimes that have good reasons don't you see what i mean i don't care anything about reasons but i know what i like 
"'Ah, that's the great thing,' said Isabel, smiling and suspecting that her acquaintance with this likely flitting personage would not lead to intellectual repose. If the Countess objected to argument, Isabel at this moment had as little taste for it, and she put out her hand to Pansy with a pleasant sense that such a gesture committed her to nothing that would admit of a divergence of views. Gilbert Osmond apparently took a rather hopeless view of his sister's tone. He turned the conversation to another topic. He presently sat down on the other side of his daughter, who had shyly brushed Isabel's fingers with her own, but he ended by drawing her out of her chair and making her stand between his knees, leaning against him while he passed his arm round her slimness. The child fixed her eyes on Isabel with a still disinterested gaze, which seemed void of an intention, yet conscious of an attraction. Mr. Osmond talked of many things. Madame Merle had said he could be agreeable when he chose, and to-day, after a little, he appeared not only to have chosen, but to have determined. Madame Merle and the Countess Gemini sat a little apart, conversing in the effortless manner of persons who knew each other well enough to take their ease, but every now and then Isabel heard the Countess, at something said by her companion, plunge into the latter's lucidity as a poodle splashes after a thrown stick. It was as if Madame Merle were seeing how far she would go. Mr. Osmond talked of Florence, of Italy, of the pleasure of living in that country, and of the abatements to the pleasure. There were both satisfactions and drawbacks. The drawbacks were numerous. Strangers were too apt to see such a world as all romantic. It met the case soothingly for the human, for the social failure, by which he meant the people who couldn't realize, as they said, on their sensibility. They could keep it about them there, in their poverty, without ridicule, as you might keep an heirloom or an inconvenient entailed place that brought you in nothing. Thus there were advantages to living in the country which contained the greatest sum of beauty. Certain impressions you could only get there. Others, favourable to life, you never got, and you got some that were very bad. But from time to time you got one of a quality that made up for everything. Italy, all the same, had spoiled a good many people. He was even fatuous enough to believe at times that he himself might have been a better man if he had spent less of his life there. It made one idle and dilettantish and second-rate. It had no discipline for the character, didn't cultivate in you, otherwise expressed, the successful social and other cheek that flourished in Paris and London. "'We're sweetly provincial,' said Mr. Osmond. "'And I'm perfectly aware that I myself am as rusty as a key that has no lock to fit it. It polishes me up a little to talk with you. Not that I venture to pretend I can turn that very complicated lock I suspect your intellect of being. But you'll be going away before I've seen you three times, and I shall perhaps never see you after that. That's what it is to live in a country that people come to. When they're disagreeable here, it's bad enough. When they're agreeable, it's still worse. As soon as you like them, they're off again. I've been deceived too often. I've ceased to form attachments, to permit myself to feel attractions. You mean to stay? To settle? That would be really comfortable. Ah, yes, your aunt's a sort of guarantee. I believe she may be depended upon. Oh, she's an old Florentine. I mean literally an old one, not a modern outsider. She's a contemporary of the Medici. She must have been present at the burning of Savonarola, and I'm not sure she didn't throw a handful of chips into the flame. Her face is very much like some faces in the early pictures. 
little, dry, definite faces that must have had a good deal of expression, but almost always the same one. Indeed, I can show you her portrait at a fresco of Gerlandio's. I hope you don't object to my speaking that way of your aunt, eh? I've an idea you don't. Perhaps you think that's even worse. I assure you there's no want of respect in it to either of you. You know I'm a particular admirer of Mrs. Touchett. While Isabel's host exerted himself to entertain her in this somewhat confidential fashion, she looked occasionally at Madame Merle, who met her eyes with an inattentive smile, in which, on this occasion, there was no infelicitous intimation that our heroine appeared to advantage. Madame Merle eventually proposed to the Countess Gemini that they should go into the garden, and the Countess, rising and shaking out her feathers, began to rustle toward the door. "'Poor Miss Archer!' she exclaimed, surveying the other group with expressive compassion. "'She has been brought quite into the family.' "'Miss Archer can certainly have nothing but sympathy for a family to which you belong,' Mr. Osmond answered with a laugh, which, though it had something of a mocking ring, had also a finer patience. "'I don't know what you mean by that. I'm sure she'll see no harm in me but what you tell her.' "'I'm better than he says, Miss Archer,' the Countess went on. "'I'm only rather an idiot and a bore. "'Is that all he has said? "'Ah, then, you keep him in good humour. "'Has he opened on one of his favourite subjects? "'I give you notice that there are two or three that he treats as fond. "'In that case you had better take off your bonnet.' "'I don't think I know what Mr. Osmond's favourite subjects are,' "'said Isabel, who had risen to her feet.' The Countess assumed for an instant an attitude of intense meditation, pressing one of her hands, with the fingertips gathered together, to her forehead. "'I'll tell you in a moment. One's Machiavelli, the other's Vittoria Colonna, the next is Metastasio.' "'Ah, with me,' said Madame Merle, passing her arm into the Countess Gemini's, as if to guide her course into the garden. "'Mr. Osmond's never so historical.' "'Oh, you!' the Countess answered as they moved away. "'You yourself are Machiavelli. You yourself are Vittoria Colonna.' "'We shall hear next that poor Madame Merle is Metastasio,' Gilbert Osmond resignedly sighed. Isabel had got up on the assumption that they, too, were to go into the garden, but her host stood there with no apparent inclination to leave the room, his hands in the pockets of his jacket, and his daughter, who had now locked her arm into one of his own, clinging to him and looking up, while her eyes moved from his own face to Isabel's. Isabel waited with a certain unuttered contentedness to have her movements directed. She liked Mr. Osmond's talk, his company. She had what always gave her a very private thrill, the consciousness of a new relation. Through the open doors of the great room she saw Madame Merle and the Countess stroll across the fine grass of the garden. Then she turned, and her eyes wandered over the things scattered about her. The understanding had been that Mr. Osmond should show her his treasures. His pictures and cabinets all looked like treasures. Isabel, after a moment, went toward one of the pictures, to see it better. But just as she had done so, he said to her abruptly, "'Miss Archer, what do you think of my sister?' She faced him with some surprise. Oh, "'Don't ask me that. I've seen your sister too little.' "'Yes, you've seen her very little. But you must have observed that there is not a great deal of her to see.' "'What do you think of our family tone?' he went on with his cool smile. "'I should like to know how it strikes a fresh, unprejudiced mind. "'I know what you're going to say. 
you've had almost no observation of it. Of course, this is only a glimpse. But just take notice in future, if you have a chance. I sometimes think we've got into a rather bad way, living off here among things and people not our own, without responsibilities or attachments, with nothing to hold us together or keep us up. Marrying foreigners, forming artificial tastes, playing tricks with our natural mission. Let me add, though, that I say that much more for myself than for my sister. She's a very honest lady, more so than she seems. She's rather unhappy, and as she's not of a serious turn and doesn't tend to show it tragically, she shows it comically instead. She has got a horrid husband, though I'm not sure she makes the best of him. Of course, however, a horrid husband's an awkward thing. Madame Merle gives her excellent advice, but it's a good deal like giving a child a dictionary to learn a language with. He can look out the words, but he can't put them together. My sister needs a grammar, but unfortunately she's not grammatical. Pardon my troubling you with these details. My sister was very right in saying you've been taken into the family. Let me take down that picture. You want more light. He took down the picture, carried it to the window, related some curious facts about it. She looked at the other works of art, and he gave her such further information as might appear most acceptable to a young lady making a call on a summer afternoon. His pictures, his medallions, and tapestries were interesting, but after a while Isabel felt the owner much more so, and independently of them, thickly as they seemed to overhang him. He resembled no one she had ever seen. Most of the people she knew might be divided into groups of half a dozen specimens. There were one or two exceptions to this. She could think, for instance, of no group that would contain her Aunt Lydia. There were other people who were, relatively speaking, original. Original, as one might say, by courtesy such as Mr. Goodwood, as her cousin Ralph, as Henrietta Stackpole, as Lord Warburton, as Madame Merle. But in essentials, when one came to look at them, these individuals belonged to types already present to her mind. Her mind contained no class offering a natural place to Mr. Osmond. He was a specimen apart. It was not that she recognized all these truths at the hour, but they were falling into order before her. For the moment she only said to herself that this new relation would perhaps prove her very most distinguished. Madame Merle had had that note of rarity, but what quite other power it immediately gained when sounded by a man! It was not so much what he said and did, but rather what he withheld that marked him for her as one of those signs of the highly curious that he was showing her on the underside of old plates and in the corner of sixteenth-century drawings. He indulged in no striking deflections from common usage. He was an original, without being an eccentric. She had never met a person of so fine a grain. The peculiarity was physical to begin with, and it extended to impalpabilities. His dense, delicate hair, his overdrawn, retouched features, his clear complexion, ripe without being coarse, the very evenness of the growth of his beard, and that light, smooth slenderness of structure which made the movement of a single one of his fingers produce the effect of an expansive gesture, these personal points struck our sensitive young woman as signs of quality, of intensity, somehow as promises of interest. He was certainly fastidious and critical he was probably irritable. His sensibility had governed him, possibly governed him too much. It had made him impatient of vulgar troubles, and had led him to live by himself, in a sorted, sifted, arranged world, 
thinking about art and beauty and history. He had consulted his taste in everything, his taste alone, perhaps, as a sick man consciously incurable consults at last only his lawyer. That was what made him so different from everyone else. Ralph had something of this same quality, this appearance of thinking that life was a matter of connoisseurship. But in Ralph it was an anomaly, a kind of humorous excrescence, whereas in Mr. Osmond it was the keynote, and everything was in harmony with it. She was certainly far from understanding him completely. His meaning was not at all times obvious. It was hard to see what he meant, for instance, by speaking of his provincial side, which was exactly the side she would have taken him most to lack. Was it a harmless paradox, intended to puzzle her? Or was it the last refinement of high culture? She trusted she should learn in time. It would be very interesting to learn. If it was provincial to have that harmony, what, then, was the finish of the capital? And she could put this question in spite of so feeling her host a shy personage, since such shyness as his, the shyness of ticklish nerves and fine perceptions, was so perfectly consistent with the best breeding. Indeed, it was almost a proof of standards and touchstones other than the vulgar. He must be so sure the vulgar would be first on the ground. He wasn't a man of easy assurance, who chatted and gossiped with the fluency of a superficial nature. He was critical of himself as well as of others, and exacting a good deal of others to think them agreeable, probably took a rather ironical view of what he himself offered, a proof into the bargain that he was not grossly conceited. If he had not been shy, he wouldn't have effected that gradual, subtle, successful conversion of it to which she owed both what pleased her in him and what mystified her. If he had suddenly asked her what she thought of the Countess Gemini, that was doubtless a proof that he was interested in her. It could scarcely be as a help to knowledge of his own sister. That he should be so interested showed an inquiring mind, but it was a little singular he should sacrifice his fraternal feeling to his curiosity. This was the most eccentric thing he had done. There were two other rooms, beyond the one in which she had been received, equally full of romantic objects, and in these apartments Isabel spent a quarter of an hour. Everything was in the last degree curious and precious, and Mr. Osmond continued to be the kindest of Ciceroni as he led her from one fine piece to another and still held his little girl by the hand. His kindness almost surprised our young friend, who wondered why he should take so much trouble for her, and she was oppressed at last with the accumulation of beauty and knowledge to which she found herself introduced. There was enough for the present. She had ceased to attend to what he said, and she listened to him with attentive eyes, but was not thinking of what he told her. He probably thought her quicker, cleverer in every way, more prepared than she was. Madame Merle would have pleasantly exaggerated, which was a pity, because in the end he would be sure to find out, and then perhaps even her real intelligence wouldn't reconcile him to his mistake. A part of Isabel's fatigue came from the effort to appear as intelligent as she believed Madame Merle had described her, and from the fear, very unusual with her, of exposing not her ignorance, for that she cared comparatively little, but her possible grossness of perception. It would have annoyed her to express a liking for something he, in his superior enlightenment, would think she oughtn't to like, or to pass by something at which the truly initiated mind would arrest itself. She had no wish to fall into that grotesqueness, in which she had seen women, and it was a warning, serenely yet ignobly flounder. She was very careful, therefore, as to what she said, as to what she noticed or failed to notice, 
more careful than she had ever been before. They came back into the first of the rooms, where the tea had been served, but as the two other ladies were still on the terrace, and as Isabel had not yet been made acquainted with the view, the paramount distinction of the place, Mr. Osmond directed her steps into the garden without more delay. Madame Merle and the Countess had had chairs brought out, and as the afternoon was lovely, the Countess proposed they should take their tea in the open air. Pansy, therefore, was sent to bid the servant bring out the preparations. The sun had got low, the golden light took a deeper tone, and on the mountains and the plain that stretched beneath them the masses of purple shadow glowed as richly as the places that were still exposed. The scene had an extraordinary charm. The air was almost solemnly still, and the large expanse of the landscape, with its garden-like culture and nobleness of outline, its teeming valley and delicately fretted hills, its peculiarly human-looking touches of habitation, lay there in splendid harmony and classic grace. "'You seem so well pleased that I think you can be trusted to come back,' Osmond said, as he led his companion to one of the angles of the terrace. "'I shall certainly come back,' she returned, "'in spite of what you say about its being bad to live in Italy. "'What was that you said about one's natural mission? "'I wonder if I should forsake my natural mission if I were to settle in Florence.' "'A woman's natural mission is to be where she's most appreciated.' the point's to find out where that is very true she often wastes a great deal of time in the inquiry people ought to make it very plain to her such a matter would have to be made very plain to me smiled isabel i'm glad at any rate to hear you talk of settling madame merle had given me an idea that you were rather of a roving disposition i thought she spoke of your having some plan of going round the world i'm rather ashamed of my plans I make a new one every day. I don't see why you should be ashamed. It's the greatest of pleasures. It seems frivolous, I think, said Isabel. One ought to choose something very deliberately, and be faithful to that. By that rule, then, I've not been frivolous. Have you never made plans? Yes, I made one years ago, and I'm acting on it today. It must have been a very pleasant one, Isabel permitted herself to observe. It was very simple. It was to be as quiet as possible. As quiet? the girl repeated. Not to worry, not to strive or struggle, to resign myself, to be content with little. He spoke these sentences slowly, with short pauses between, and his intelligent regard was fixed on his visitors with the conscious air of a man who has brought himself to confess something. "'Do you call that simple?' she asked, with mild irony. "'Yes, because it's negative.' "'Has your life been negative?' "'Call it affirmative, if you like. Only it has affirmed my indifference. Mind you, not my natural indifference. I had none. But my studied, my willful renunciation.' She scarcely understood him. It seemed a question whether he were joking or not. Why should a man who struck her as having a great fund of reserve suddenly bring himself to be so confidential? This was his affair, however, and his confidences were interesting. "'I don't see why you should have renounced,' she said in a moment. "'Because I could do nothing. I had no prospects, I was poor, and I was not a man of genius. I had no talents, even. I took my measure early in life. 
I was simply the most fastidious young gentleman living. There were two or three people in the world I envied, the Emperor of Russia, for instance, and the Sultan of Turkey. There were even moments when I envied the Pope of Rome, for the consideration he enjoys. I should have been delighted to be considered to that extent. But since that couldn't be, I didn't care for anything less, and I made up my mind not to go in for honours. The leanest gentleman can always consider himself, and fortunately I was, though lean, a gentleman. I could do nothing in Italy. I couldn't even be an Italian patriot. To do that I should have had to get out of the country, and I was too fond of it to leave it, to say nothing of my being too well satisfied with it on the whole, as it then was, to wish it altered. So I've passed a great many years here on that quiet plan I spoke of. I've not been at all unhappy. I don't mean to say I've cared for nothing, but the things I've cared for have been definite, limited. The events of my life have been absolutely unperceived by anyone save myself. Getting an old silver crucifix at a bargain—I've never bought anything dear, of course—or discovering, as I once did, a sketch by Correggio on a panel daubed over by some inspired idiot. This would have been rather a dry account of Mr. Osmond's career, if Isabel had fully believed it. But her imagination supplied the human element which she was sure had not been wanting. His life had been mingled with other lives more than he admitted. Naturally she couldn't expect him to enter into this. For the present she abstained from provoking further revelations. To intimate that he had not told her everything would be more familiar and less considerate than she now desired to be would, in fact, be uproariously vulgar. He had certainly told her quite enough. It was her present inclination, however, to express a measured sympathy for the success with which he had preserved his independence. "'That's a very pleasant life,' she said, "'to renounce everything but Correggio.' "'Oh, I've made in my way a good thing of it. Don't imagine I'm whining about it. It's one's own fault if one isn't happy.' This was large she kept down to something smaller. "'Have you lived here always?' "'No, not always. I lived a long time at Naples, and many years in Rome. But I've been here a good while. Perhaps I shall have to change, however, to do something else. I've no longer myself to think of. My daughter's growing up, and may possibly not care so much for the Correggios and Crucifixes as I. I shall have to do what's best for Pansy.' "'Yes, do that.' said Isabel. She's such a dear little girl. Ah! cried Gilbert Osmond beautifully. She's a little saint of heaven. She is my great happiness. End of chapter 24「While this sufficiently intimate colloquy, prolonged for some time after we ceased to follow it, went forward Madame Merle and her companion, breaking a silence of some duration, had begun to exchange remarks. They were sitting in an attitude of unexpressed expectancy, an attitude especially marked on the part of the Countess Gemini, who, being of a more nervous temperament than her friend, practised with less success the art of disguising impatience. What these ladies were waiting for would not have been apparent and was perhaps not very definite to their own minds. Madame Merle waited for Osmond to release their young friend from her tête-à-tête, -tête, 
and the countess waited because madame merle did the countess moreover by waiting found the time ripe for one of her pretty perversities she might have desired for some minutes to place it her brother wandered with isabel to the end of the garden to which point her eyes followed them my dear she then observed to her companion you'll excuse me if i don't congratulate you very willingly for i don't in the least know why you should haven't you a little plan that you think rather well of and the countess nodded at the sequestered couple madame merle's eyes took the same direction then she looked serenely at her neighbour you know i never understand you very well she smiled no one can understand better than you when you wish i see that just now you don't wish you say things to me that no one else does said madame merle gravely yet without bitterness you mean things you don't like doesn't osmond sometimes say such things what your brother says has a point yes a poisoned one sometimes if you mean that i'm not so clever as he you mustn't think i shall suffer from your sense of our difference but it will be much better that you should understand me why so asked madame merle to what will it conduce if i don't approve of your plan you ought to know it in order to appreciate the danger of my interfering with it madame merle looked as if she were ready to admit that there might be something in this but in a moment she said quietly you think me more calculating than i am it's not your calculating i think ill of it's your calculating wrong you've done so in this case you must have made extensive calculations yourself to discover that no i've not had time i've seen the girl but this once said the countess and the conviction has suddenly come to me i like her very much so do i madame merle mentioned you've a strange way of showing it surely i've given her the advantage of making your acquaintance that indeed piped the countess is perhaps the best thing that could happen to her madame merle said nothing for a time the countess's manner was odious was really low but it was an old story and with her eyes upon the violet slope of monte morello she gave herself up to reflection my dear lady she finally resumed i advise you not to agitate yourself the matter you allude to concerns three persons much stronger of purpose than yourself three persons you and osmond of course but is miss archer also very strong of purpose quite as much so as we ah then said the countess radiantly if i convince her it's her interest to resist you she'll do so successfully resist us why do you express yourself so coarsely she's not exposed to compulsion or deception i'm not sure of that you're capable of anything you and osmond i don't mean osmond by himself and i don't mean you by yourself but together you're dangerous like some chemical combination you had better leave us alone then smiled madame merle i don't mean to touch you but i shall talk to that girl my poor amy madame merle murmured i don't see what has got into your head i take an interest in her that's what has got into my head i like her madame merle hesitated a moment i don't think she likes you 
the countess's bright little eyes expanded and her face was set in a grimace ah you are dangerous even by yourself if you want her to like you don't abuse your brother to her said madame merle i don't suppose you pretend she has fallen in love with him in two interviews madame merle looked a moment at isabel and at the master of the house he was leaning against the parapet facing her his arms folded and she at present was evidently not lost in the mere impersonal view persistently as she gazed at it as madame merle watched her she lowered her eyes she was listening possibly with a certain embarrassment while she pressed the point of her parasol into the path madame merle rose from her chair yes i think so she pronounced the shabby footboy summoned by pansy he might tarnished as to livery and quaint as to type have issued from some stray sketch of old-time manners been put in by the brush of a longi or a goya had come out with a small table and placed it on the grass and then had gone back and fetched the tea-tray after which he had again disappeared to return with a couple of chairs pansy had watched these proceedings with the deepest interest standing with her small hands folded together upon the front of her scanty frock but she had not presumed to offer assistance when the tea-table had been arranged however she gently approached her aunt do you think papa would object to my making the tea the countess looked at her with a deliberately critical gaze and without answering her question my poor niece she said is that your best frock oh no pansy answered it's just a little toilette for common occasions do you call it a common occasion when i come to see you to say nothing of madame merle and the pretty lady yonder pansy reflected a moment turning gravely from one of the persons mentioned to the other then her face broke into its perfect smile i have a pretty dress but even that one's very simple why should i expose it beside your beautiful things because it's the prettiest you have for me you must always wear the prettiest please put it on next time it seems to me they don't dress you so well as they might the child sparingly stroked down her antiquated skirt it's a good little dress to make tea don't you think don't you believe papa would allow me impossible for me to say my child said the countess for me your father's ideas are unfathomable madame merle understands them better ask her madame merle smiled with her usual grace it's a weighty question let me think it seems to me it would please your father to see a careful little daughter making his tea it's the proper duty of the daughter of the house when she grows up so it seems to me madame merle pansy cried you shall see how well i'll make it a spoonful for each and she began to busy herself at the table two spoonfuls for me said the countess who with madame merle remained for some moments watching her listen to me pansy the countess resumed at last i should like to know what you think of your visitor oh she's not mine she's papa's pansy objected miss archer came to see you as well said madame merle i'm very happy to hear that she has been very polite to me do you like her then the countess asked she's charming charming pansy repeated in her neat little conversational tone she pleases me thoroughly and how do you think she pleases your father oh really countess murmured madame merle dissuasively go and call them to tea she went on to the child 
"'You'll see if they don't like it,' Pansy declared, and departed to summon the others, who had still lingered at the end of the terrace. "'If Miss Archer's to become her mother, it's surely interesting to know if the child likes her,' said the Countess. "'If your brother marries again it won't be for Pansy's sake,' Madame Merle replied. "'She'll soon be sixteen, and after that she'll begin to need a husband rather than a stepmother.' "'And will you provide the husband as well?' "'I shall certainly take an interest in her marrying fortunately. I imagine you'll do the same.' "'Indeed I shan't!' cried the Countess. "'Why should I, of all women, set such a price on a husband?' "'You didn't marry fortunately. That's what I'm speaking of. When I say a husband, I mean a good one.' "'There are no good ones. Osmond won't be a good one.' Madame Merle closed her eyes a moment. "'You're irritated just now. I don't know why,' she presently said. "'I don't think you'll really object either to your brothers or to your nieces marrying, when the time comes for them to do so. And as regards Pansy, I'm confident that we shall some day have the pleasure of looking for a husband for her together. Your large acquaintance will be a great help.' "'Yes, I'm irritated,' the Countess answered. "'You often irritate me.' "'Your own coolness is fabulous. You're a strange woman.' "'It's much better that we should always act together,' Madame Merle went on. "'Do you mean that as a threat?' asked the Countess, rising. Madame Merle shook her head as for quiet amusement. "'No, indeed, you've not my coolness.' Isabel and Mr. Osmond were now slowly coming toward them, and Isabel had taken Pansy by the hand— "'Do you pretend to believe he'd make her happy?' the Countess demanded. "'If he should marry Miss Archer, I suppose he'd behave like a gentleman?' The Countess jerked herself into a succession of attitudes. "'Do you mean as most gentlemen behave? That would be much to be thankful for. Of course Osmond's a gentleman. His own sister needn't be reminded of that. But does he think he can marry any girl he happens to pick out? Osmond's a gentleman, of course, but I must say I've never—' "'No, no, never seen any one of Osmond's pretensions. "'What they're all founded on is more than I can say. "'I'm his own sister. I might be supposed to know. "'Who is he, if you please? What has he ever done? "'If there had been anything particularly grand in his origin, "'if he were made of some superior clay, "'I presume I should have got some inkling of it. "'If there had been any great honours or splendours in the family, "'I should certainly have made the most of them. "'They would have been quite in my line. "'But there's nothing.' "'Nothing, nothing! One's parents were charming people, of course, but so were yours, I've no doubt. Everyone's a charming person nowadays. Even I'm a charming person. Don't laugh. It has literally been said. As for Osmond, he has always appeared to believe that he's descended from the gods.' "'You may say what you please,' said Madame Merle, who had listened to this quick outbreak none the less attentively, we may believe, because her eye wandered away from the speaker, and her hands busied themselves with adjusting the knots of ribbon on her dress. "'You Osmonds are a fine race. Your blood must flow from some very pure source. Your brother, like an intelligent man, has had the conviction of it, if he has not had the proofs. You are modest about it, but you yourself are extremely distinguished. What do you say about your niece? The child's a little princess.' "'Nevertheless,' Madame Merle added, it won't be an easy matter for Osmond to marry Miss Archer. Yet he can try. I hope she'll refuse him. It will take him down a little. We mustn't forget that he is one of the cleverest of men. 
I've heard you say that before, but I haven't yet discovered what he has done. What he has done? He has done nothing that has had to be undone, and he has known how to wait. To wait for Miss Archer's money? How much of it is there? That's not what I mean, said Madame Merle. Miss Archer has seventy thousand pounds. Well, it's a pity she's so charming, the Countess declared. To be sacrificed, any girl would do. She needn't be superior. If she weren't superior, your brother would never look at her. He must have the best. Yes, returned the Countess, as they went forward a little to meet the others. He's very hard to satisfy. That makes me tremble for her happiness. End of chapter 25《Chapter Twenty Six of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gilbert Osmond came to see Isabel again, that is, he came to Palazzo Crescentini. He had other friends there as well, and to Mrs. Touchett and Madame Merle he was always impartially civil. But the former of these ladies noted the fact that in the course of a fortnight he called five times and compared it with another fact that she found no difficulty in remembering. Two visits a year had hitherto constituted his regular tribute to Mrs. Touchett's worth, and she had never observed him select for such visits those moments, of almost periodical recurrence, when Madame Merle was under her roof. It was not for Madame Merle that he came. These two were old friends, and he never put himself out for her. He was not fond of Ralph. Ralph had told her so and it was not supposable that Mr. Osmond had suddenly taken a fancy to her son. Ralph was imperturbable. Ralph had a kind of loose-fitting urbanity that wrapped him about like an ill-made overcoat, but of which he never divested himself. He thought Mr. Osmond very good company, and was willing at any time to look at him in the light of hospitality. But he didn't flatter himself that the desire to repair a past injustice was the motive of their visitor's calls. He read the situation more clearly. Isabel was the attraction, and in all conscience a sufficient one. Osmond was a critic, a student of the exquisite, and it was natural he should be curious of so rare an apparition. So, when his mother observed to him that it was plain what Mr. Osmond was thinking of, Ralph replied that he was quite of her opinion. Mrs. Touchett had from far back found a place on her scant list for this gentleman, though wondering dimly by what art and what process, so negative and so wise as they were, he had everywhere effectively imposed himself. As he had never been an importunate visitor, he had had no chance to be offensive, and he was recommended to her by his appearance of being as well able to do without her as she was to do without him, a quality that always, oddly enough, affected her as providing ground for a relation with her. It gave her no satisfaction, however, to think that he had taken it into his head to marry her niece. Such an alliance on Isabel's part would have an air of almost morbid perversity. Mrs. Touchett easily remembered that the girl had refused an English peer, and that a young lady with whom Lord Warburton had not successfully wrestled should content herself with an obscure American dilettante, a middle-aged widower with an uncanny child, and an ambiguous income. This answered to nothing in Mrs. Touchett's conception of success. She took, it will be observed, not the sentimental, but the political view of matrimony, a view which has always had much to recommend it. "'I trust she won't have the folly to listen to him,' 
she said to her son. To which Ralph replied that Isabel's listening was one thing, and Isabel's answering quite another. He knew she had listened to several parties, as his father would have said, but had made them listen in return, and he found much entertainment in the idea that in these few months of his knowing her he should observe a fresh suitor at her gate. She had wanted to see life, and fortune was serving her to her taste. A succession of fine gentlemen going down on their knees to her would do as well as anything else. Ralph looked forward to a fourth, a fifth, a tenth besieger. He had no conviction she would stop at a third. She would keep the gate ajar and open a parley. She would certainly not allow number three to come in. He expressed this view, and somewhat after this fashion, to his mother, who looked at him as if he had been dancing a jig. He had such a fanciful pictorial way of saying things that he might as well address her in the deaf-mute's alphabet. "'I don't think I know what you mean,' she said. "'You use too many figures of speech. I could never understand allegories. The two words in the language I most respect are yes and no. If Isabel wants to marry Mr. Osmond, she'll do so in spite of all your comparisons. Let her alone to find a fine one herself for anything she undertakes. I know very little about the young man in America.' I don't think she spends much of her time in thinking of him, and I suspect he has got tired of waiting for her. There's nothing in life to prevent her marrying Mr. Osmond, if she only looks at him in a certain way. That's all very well. No one approves more than I of one's pleasing oneself. But she takes her pleasure in such odd things. She's capable of marrying Mr. Osmond for the beauty of his opinions, or for his autograph of Michelangelo. She wants to be disinterested, as if she were the only person who's in danger of not being so. Will he be so disinterested when he has the spending of her money? That was her idea before your father's death, and it has acquired new charms for her since. She ought to marry some one of whose disinterestedness she shall herself be sure, and there would be no such proof of that as his having a fortune of his own. My dear mother, I'm not afraid, Ralph answered. She's making fools of us all. She'll please herself, of course, but she'll do so by studying human nature at close quarters and yet retaining her liberty. She has started on an exploring expedition, but I don't think she'll change her course at the outset at a signal from Gilbert Osmond. She may have slackened speed for an hour, but before we know it she'll be steaming away again. Excuse another metaphor. Mrs. Touchett excused it, perhaps, but was not so much reassured as to withhold from Madame Merle the expression of her fears. "'You who know everything,' she said, "'you must know this.' whether that curious creature is really making love to my niece. "'Gilbert Osmond?' Madame Merle widened her clear eyes, and with a full intelligence. "'Heaven help us!' she exclaimed. "'That's an idea.' "'Hadn't it occurred to you?' "'You make me feel like an idiot, but I confess it hadn't. "'I wonder,' she added, "'if it has occurred to Isabel.' "'Oh, I shall now ask her,' said Mrs. Touchett. Madame Merle reflected. "'Don't put it into her head. The thing would be to ask Mr. Osmond.' "'I can't do that,' said Mrs. Touchett. "'I won't have him inquire of me, as he perfectly may, with that air of his, given Isabel's situation, what business it is of mine.' "'I'll ask him myself,' Madame Merle bravely declared. "'But what business, for him, is it of yours?' "'It's being none whatever is just why I can afford to speak.' It's so much less my business than anyone else's that he can put me off with anything he chooses. But it will be by the way he does this that I shall know. "'Pray let me hear, then,' said Mrs. Touchett, 
of the fruits of your penetration. If I can't speak to him, however, at least I can speak to Isabel. Her companion sounded at this the note of warning. Don't be too quick with her. Don't inflame her imagination. I never did anything in life to anyone's imagination. But I'm always sure of her doing something. Well, not of my kind. No, you wouldn't like this, Madame Merle observed without the point of interrogation. Why in the world should I, pray? Mr. Osmond has nothing the least solid to offer. Again Madame Merle was silent while her thoughtful smile drew up her mouth even more charmingly than usual toward the left corner. Let us distinguish. Gilbert Osmond certainly not the first comer. He's a man who in favourable conditions might very well make a great impression. He has made a great impression, to my knowledge, more than once. Don't tell me about his probably quite cold-blooded love affairs. They're nothing to me, Mrs. Touchett cried. What you say is precisely why I wish he would cease his visits. He has nothing in the world that I know of but a dozen or two of early masters and a more or less pert little daughter. The early masters are now worth a good deal of money, said Madame Merle, and the daughter is a very young and very innocent and very harmless person. In other words, she's an insipid little chit. Is that what you mean? Having no fortune, she can't hope to marry as they marry here, so that Isabel will have to furnish her either with a maintenance or with a dowry. Isabel probably wouldn't object to being kind to her. I think she likes the poor child. Another reason, then, for Mr. Osmond's stopping at home. Otherwise, a week hence, we shall have my niece arriving at the conviction that her mission in life's to prove that a stepmother may sacrifice herself, and that to prove it she must first become one. She would make a charming stepmother, smiled Madame Merle. But I quite agree with you that she had better not decide upon her mission too hastily, changing the form of one's mission's almost as difficult as changing the shape of one's nose. There they are, each in the middle of one's face and one's character. One has to begin too far back. But I'll investigate and report to you. All this went on quite over Isabel's head. She had no suspicions that her relations with Mr. Osmond were being discussed. Madame Merle had said nothing to put her on her guard. She alluded no more pointedly to him than to the other gentlemen of Florence, native and foreign, who now arrived in considerable numbers to pay their respects to Miss Archer's aunt. Isabel thought him interesting. She came back to that. She liked so to think of him. She had carried away an image from her visit to his hilltop, which her subsequent knowledge of him did nothing to efface, and which put on for her a particular harmony with her other supposed and divined things, histories within histories, the image of a quiet, clever, sensitive, distinguished man, strolling on a moss-grown terrace, above the sweet Val d'Arno, and holding by the hand a little girl, whose bell-like clearness gave a new grace to childhood. The picture had no flourishes, but she liked its lowness of tone, and the atmosphere of summer twilight that pervaded it. It spoke of the kind of personal issue that touched her most nearly, of the choice between objects, subjects, contacts, what might she call them? Of a thin and those of a rich association, of a lonely, studious life in a lovely land, of an old sorrow that sometimes ached to-day, of a feeling of pride that was perhaps exaggerated, but that had an element of nobleness, of a care for beauty and perfection so natural and so cultivated together that the career appeared to stretch beneath it in the disposed vistas and with the range of steps and terraces and fountains of a formal Italian garden. 
allowing only for arid places refreshed by the natural dews of a quaint half-anxious half-helpless fatherhood at palazzo crescentini mr osmond's manner remained the same diffident at first oh self-conscious beyond doubt and full of the effort visible only to a sympathetic eye to overcome this disadvantage an effort which usually resulted in a great deal of easy lively very positive rather aggressive always suggestive talk mr osmond's talk was not injured by the indication of an eagerness to shine isabel found no difficulty in believing that a person was sincere who had so many of the signs of strong conviction as for instance an explicit and graceful appreciation of anything that might be said on his own side of the question said perhaps by miss archer in especial what continued to please this young woman was that while he talked so for amusement he didn't talk as she had heard people for effect he uttered his ideas as if odd as they often appeared he were used to them and had lived with them old polished knobs and heads and handles of precious substance that could be fitted if necessary to new walking-sticks not switches plucked in destitution from the common tree and then too elegantly waved about one day he brought his small daughter with him and she rejoiced to renew acquaintance with the child who as she presented her forehead to be kissed by every member of the circle reminded her vividly of an ingenue in a french play isabel had never seen a little person of this pattern american girls were very different different too were the maidens of england pansy was so formed and finished for her tiny place in the world and yet in imagination as one could see so innocent and infantine she sat on the sofa by isabel she wore a small grenadine mantle and a pair of the useful gloves that madame merle had given her little grey gloves with a single button she was like a sheet of blank paper the ideal jeune fille of foreign fiction isabel hoped that so fair and smooth a page would be covered with an edifying text the countess gemini also came to call upon her but the countess was quite another affair she was by no means a blank sheet she had been written over in a variety of hands and mrs touchett who felt by no means honoured by her visit pronounced that a number of unmistakable blots were to be seen upon her surface the countess gave rise indeed to some discussion between the mistress of the house and the visitor from rome in which madame merle who was not such a fool as to irritate people by always agreeing with them availed herself felicitously enough of that large license of dissent which her hostess permitted as freely as she practised it mrs touchett had declared it a piece of audacity that this highly compromised character should have presented herself at such a time of day at the door of a house in which she was esteemed so little as she must long have known herself to be at palazzo crescentini isabel had been made acquainted with the estimate prevailing under that roof it represented mr osmond's sister as a lady who had so mismanaged her improprieties that they had ceased to hang together at all which was at the least what one asked of such matters and had become the mere floating fragments of a wrecked renown incommoding social circulation she had been married by her mother a more administrative person with an appreciation of foreign titles which the daughter to do her justice had probably by this time thrown off to an italian nobleman who had perhaps given her some excuse for attempting to quench the consciousness of outrage the countess however had consoled herself outrageously and the list of her excuses had now lost itself in the labyrinth of her adventures mrs touchett had never consented to receive her though the countess had made overtures of old 
Florence was not an austere city, but, as Mrs. Touchett said, she had to draw the line somewhere. Madame Merle defended the luckless lady with a great deal of zeal and wit. She couldn't see why Mrs. Touchett should make a scapegoat of a woman who had really done no harm, who had done only good in the wrong way. One must certainly draw the line, but while one was about it, one should draw it straight. It was a very crooked chalk-mark that would exclude the Countess Gemini. In that case Mrs. Touchett had better shut up her house. This, perhaps, would be the best course, so long as she remained in Florence. One must be fair and not make arbitrary differences. The Countess had doubtless been imprudent. She had not been so clever as other women. She was a good creature, not clever at all. But since when had that been a ground of exclusion from the best society? For ever so long now one had heard nothing about her, and there could be no better proof of her having renounced the error of her ways than her desire to become a member of Mrs. Touchett's circle. Isabel could contribute nothing to this interesting dispute, not even a patient attention. She contented herself with having given a friendly welcome to the unfortunate lady, who, whatever her defects, had at least the merit of being Mr. Osmond's sister. As she liked the brother, Isabel thought it proper to try and like the sister. In spite of the growing complexity of things, she was still capable of these primitive sequences. She had not received the happiest impression of the Countess on meeting her at the villa, but was thankful for an opportunity to repair the accident. Had not Mr. Osmond remarked that she was a respectable person? To have proceeded from Gilbert Osmond this was a crude proposition, but Madame Merle bestowed upon it a certain improving polish. She told Isabel more about the poor Countess than Mr. Osmond had done, and related the history of her marriage and its consequences. The Count was a member of an ancient Tuscan family, but of such small estate that he had been glad to accept Amy Osmond, in spite of the questionable beauty which had yet not hampered her career, and with the modest dowry her mother was able to offer, a sum about equivalent to that which had already formed her brother's share of their patrimony. Count Gemini since then, however, had inherited money, and now they were well off enough, as Italians went, though Amy was horribly extravagant. The Count was a low-lived brute. He had given his wife every pretext. She had no children. She had lost three within a year of their birth. Her mother, who had bristled with pretensions to elegant learning and published descriptive poems and corresponded on Italian subjects with the English weekly journals, her mother had died three years after the Countess's marriage. The father, lost in the grey American dawn of the situation, but reputed originally rich and wild, having died much earlier. One could see this in Gilbert Osmond, Madame Merle held, see that he had been brought up by a woman, though, to do him justice, one would suppose it had been by a more sensible woman than the American Corinne, as Mrs. Osmond had liked to be called. She had brought her children to Italy after her husband's death, and Mrs. Touchett remembered her during the year that followed her arrival. She thought her a horrible snob, but this was an irregularity of judgment on Mrs. Touchett's part, for she, like Mrs. Osmond, approved of political marriages. The Countess was very good company, and not really the feather-head she seemed. All one had to do with her was to observe the simple condition of not believing a word she said. Madame Merle had always made the best of her for her brother's sake. He appreciated any kindness shown to Amy, because, if it had to be confessed for him, he rather felt she let down their common name. Naturally he couldn't like her style, her shrillness, her egotism, her violations of taste and above all of truth. She acted badly on his nerves. She was not his sort of woman. 
What was his sort of woman? Oh, the very opposite of the Countess, a woman to whom the truth should be habitually sacred. Isabel was unable to estimate the number of times her visitor had, in half an hour, profaned it. The Countess, indeed, had given her an impression of rather silly sincerity. She had talked almost exclusively about herself, how much she should like to know Miss Archer, how thankful she should be for a real friend, how base the people in Florence were, how tired she was of the place, how much she should like to live somewhere else, in Paris, in London, in Washington, how impossible it was to get anything nice to wear in Italy, except a little old lace, how dear the world was growing everywhere, what a life of suffering and privation she had led. Madame Merle listened with interest to Isabel's account of this passage, but she had not needed it to feel exempt from anxiety. On the whole, she was not afraid of the Countess, and she could afford to do what was altogether best, not to appear so. Isabel had, meanwhile, another visitor, whom it was not, even behind her back, so easy a matter to patronize. Henrietta Stackpole, who had left Paris after Mrs. Touchett's departure for San Remo, and had worked her way down, as she said, through the cities of North Italy, reached the banks of the Arno about the middle of May. Madame Merle surveyed her with a single glance, took her in from head to foot, and after a pang of despair, determined to endure her. She determined, indeed, to delight in her. She mightn't be inhaled as a rose, but she might be grasped as a nettle. Madame Merle genially squeezed her into insignificance, and Isabel felt that in foreseeing this liberality she had done justice to her friend's intelligence. Henrietta's arrival had been announced by Mr. Bantling, who, coming down from Nice while she was at Venice, and expecting to find her in Florence, which she had not yet reached, called at Palazzo Crescentini to express his disappointment. Henrietta's own advent occurred two days later, and produced in Mr. Bantling an emotion amply accounted for by the fact that he had not seen her since the termination of the episode at Versailles. The humorous view of his situation was generally taken, but it was uttered only by Ralph Touchett, who, in the privacy of his own apartment, when Bantling smoked a cigar there, indulged in goodness knows what strong comedy on the subject of the all-judging one and her British backer. This gentleman took the joke in perfectly good part, and candidly confessed that he regarded the affair as a positive intellectual adventure. He liked Miss Stackpole extremely, he thought she had a wonderful head on her shoulders, and found great comfort in the society of a woman who was not perpetually thinking about what would be said, and how what she did, how what they did, and they had done things, would look. Miss Stackpole never cared how anything looked, and if she didn't care, pray why should he? But his curiosity had been roused. He wanted awfully to see if she ever would care. He was prepared to go as far as she. He didn't see why he should break down first. Henrietta showed no signs of breaking down. Her prospects had brightened on her leaving England, and she was now in the full enjoyment of her copious resources. She had indeed been obliged to sacrifice her hopes with regard to the inner life. The social question on the continent bristled with difficulties even more numerous than those she had encountered in England. But on the continent there was the outer life, which was palpable and visible at every turn, and more easily convertible to literary uses than the customs of those opaque islanders. Out of doors in foreign lands, as she ingeniously remarked, one seemed to see the right side of the tapestry. Out of doors in England one seemed to see the wrong side, which gave one no notion of the figure. The admission costs her historian a pang, but Henrietta, despairing of more occult things, was now paying much attention to the outer life. 
she had been studying it for two months at venice from which city she sent to the interviewer a conscientious account of the gondolas the piazza the bridge of sighs the pigeons and the young boatman who chanted tasso the interviewer was perhaps disappointed but henrietta was at least seeing europe her present purpose was to get down to rome before the malaria should come on she apparently supposed that it began on a fixed day and with this design she was to spend at present but few days in florence mr bantling was to go with her to rome and she pointed out to isabel that as he had been there before as he was a military man and as he had had a classical education he had been bred at eton where they study nothing but latin and white melville said miss stackpole he would be a most useful companion in the city of the caesars at this juncture ralph had the happy idea of proposing to isabel that she also under his own escort should make a pilgrimage to rome she expected to pass a portion of the next winter there that was very well but meantime there was no harm in surveying the field there were ten days left of the beautiful month of may the most precious month of all to the true rome lover isabel would become a rome lover that was a foregone conclusion she was provided with a trusty companion of her own sex whose society thanks to the fact of other calls on this lady's attention would probably not be oppressive madame merle would remain with mrs touchett she had left rome for the summer and wouldn't care to return she professed herself delighted to be left at peace in florence she had locked up her apartment and sent her cook home to palestrina she urged isabel however to assent to ralph's proposal and assured her that a good introduction to rome was not a thing to be despised isabel in truth needed no urging and the party of four arranged its little journey mrs touchett on this occasion had resigned herself to the absence of a duenna we have seen that she was now inclined to believe that her niece should stand alone one of isabel's preparations consisted of her seeing gilbert osmond before she started and mentioning her intention to him i should like to be in rome with you he commented i should like to see you on that wonderful ground she scarcely faltered you might come then but you'll have a lot of people with you ah isabel admitted of course i shall not be alone for a moment he said nothing more you'll like it he went on at last they've spoiled it but you'll rave about it ought i to dislike it because poor old dear the niobe of nations you know it has been spoiled she asked no i think not it has been spoiled so often he smiled if i were to go what should i do with my little girl can't you leave her at the villa i don't know that i like that though there's a very good old woman who looks after her i can't afford a governess bring her with you then said isabel promptly mr osmond looked grave she has been in rome all winter at her convent and she's too young to make journeys of pleasure you don't like bringing her forward isabel inquired no i think young girls should be kept out of the world i was brought up on a different system you oh with you it succeeded because you you were exceptional i don't see why said isabel who however was not sure that there was not some truth in the speech mr osmond didn't explain he simply went on if i thought it would make her resemble you to join a social group in rome i take her there to-morrow don't make her resemble me said isabel keep her like herself i might send her to my sister 
Mr. Osmond observed. He had almost the air of asking advice. He seemed to like to talk over his domestic matters with Miss Archer. Yes, she concurred. I think that wouldn't do much towards making her resemble me. After she had left Florence, Gilbert Osmond met Madame Merle at the Countess Gemini's. There were other people present, the Countess's drawing-room was usually well filled, and the talk had been general. But after a while Osmond left his place and came and sat on an ottoman half behind, half beside Madame Merle's chair. "'She wants me to go to Rome with her,' he remarked in a low voice. "'To go with her? To be there while she's there? She proposed it.' I suppose you mean that you proposed it and she assented. Of course I gave her a chance. But she's encouraging. She's very encouraging. I rejoice to hear it. But don't cry victory too soon. Of course you'll go to Rome. Ah, said Osmond, it makes one work, this idea of yours. Don't pretend you don't enjoy it. You're very ungrateful. You've not been so well occupied these many years. The way you take it's beautiful, said Osmond. I ought to be grateful for that. Not too much so, however, Madame Merle answered. She talked with her usual smile, leaning back in her chair and looking round the room. You've made a very good impression, and I've seen for myself that you've received one. You've not come to Mrs. Touchett seven times to oblige me. The girl's not disagreeable, Osmond quietly conceded. Madame Merle dropped her eye on him a moment, during which her lips closed with a certain firmness. "'Is that all you can find to say about that fine creature?' "'All. Isn't it enough? Of how many people have you heard me say more?' She made no answer to this, but still presented her talkative grace to the room. "'You're unfathomable,' she murmured at last. I'm frightened at the abyss into which I shall have cast her. He took it almost gaily. You can't draw back. You've gone too far. Very good. But you must do the rest yourself. I shall do it, said Gilbert Osmond. Madame Merle remained silent, and he changed his place again. But when she rose to go, he also took leave. Mrs. Touchett's Victoria was awaiting her guest in the court, and after he had helped his friend into it, he stood there detaining her. "'You're very indiscreet,' she said rather wearily. "'You shouldn't have moved when I did.' He had taken off his hat. He passed his hand over his forehead. "'I always forget. I'm out of the habit.' "'You're quite unfathomable,' she repeated, glancing up at the windows of the house, a modern structure in the new part of the town. He paid no heed to this remark, but spoke in his own sense. She's really very charming. I've scarcely known any one more graceful. It does me good to hear you say that. The better you like her, the better for me. I like her very much. She's all you described her, and into the bargain capable, I feel, of great devotion. She has only one fault— "'What's that?' "'Too many ideas. "'I warned you she was clever. "'Fortunately, they're very bad ones,' said Osmond. "'Why is that fortunate?' "'Dom, if they must be sacrificed.' 
Madame Merle leaned back, looking straight before her. Then she spoke to the coachman. But her friend again detained her. "'If I go to Rome, what shall I do with Pansy?' "'I'll go and see her,' said Madame Merle. End of chapter 26「Twenty Seven of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I may not attempt to report in its fullness our young woman's response to the deep appeal of Rome, to analyze her feelings as she trod the pavement of the Forum, or to number her pulsations as she crossed the threshold of St. Peter's. It is enough to say that her impression was such as might have been expected of a person of her freshness and her eagerness. She had always been fond of history, and here was history in the stones of the street and the atoms of the sunshine. She had an imagination that kindled at the mention of great deeds, and wherever she turned some great deed had been acted. These things strongly moved her, but moved her all inwardly. It seemed to her companions that she talked less than usual, and Ralph Touchett, when he appeared to be looking listlessly and awkwardly over her head, was really dropping on her an intensity of observation. By her own measure she was very happy. She would even have been willing to take these hours for the happiest she was ever to know. The sense of the terrible human past was heavy to her, but that of something altogether contemporary would suddenly give it wings that it could wave in the blue. Her consciousness was so mixed that she scarcely knew where the different parts of it would lead her and she went about in a repressed ecstasy of contemplation, seeing often in the things she looked at a great deal more than was there, and yet not seeing many of the items enumerated in her Murray. Rome, as Ralph said, confessed to the psychological moment. The herd of re-echoing tourists had departed, and most of the solemn places had relapsed into solemnity. The sky was a blaze of blue, and the plash of the fountains in their mossy niches had lost its chill and doubled its music. On the corners of the warm, bright streets one stumbled on bundles of flowers. Our friends had gone one afternoon—it was the third of their stay—to look at the latest excavations in the Forum, these labours having been for some time previous largely extended. They had descended from the modern street to the level of the sacred way, along which they wandered with a reverence of step which was not the same on the part of each. Henrietta Stackpole was struck with the fact that ancient Rome had been paved a good deal like New York, and even found an analogy between the deep chariot ruts traceable in the antique street and the over-jangled iron grooves which expressed the intensity of American life. The sun had begun to sink, the air was a golden haze, and the long shadows of broken column and vague pedestal leaned across the field of ruin. Henrietta wandered away with Mr. Bantling, whom it was apparently delightful to her to hear speak of Julius Caesar as a cheeky old boy, and Ralph addressed such elucidations as he was prepared to offer to the attentive ear of our heroine. One of the humble archaeologists who hover about the place had put himself at the disposal of the two, and repeated his lesson with a fluency which the decline of the season had done nothing to impair. A process of digging was on view in a remote corner of the forum, and he presently remarked that if it should please the signori to go and watch it a little, they might see something of interest. 
the proposal commended itself more to Ralph than to Isabel, weary with much wandering, so that she admonished her companion to satisfy his curiosity while she patiently awaited his return. The hour and the place were much to her taste. She should enjoy being briefly alone. Ralph accordingly went off with the Cicerone, while Isabel sat down on a prostrate column near the foundations of the capital. She wanted a short solitude, but she was not long to enjoy it. Keen as was her interest in the rugged relics of the Roman past that lay scattered about her, and in which the corrosion of centuries had still left so much of individual life, her thoughts, after resting a while on these things, had wandered, by a concatenation of stages it might require some subtlety to trace, to regions and objects charged with a more active appeal. From the Roman past to Isabel Archer's future was a long stride, but her imagination had taken it in a single flight, and now hovered in slow circles over the nearer and richer field. She was so absorbed in her thoughts, as she bent her eyes upon a row of cracked but not dislocated slabs covering the ground at her feet, that she had not heard the sound of approaching footsteps before a shadow was thrown across the line of her vision. She looked up and saw a gentleman, a gentleman who was not Ralph come back to say that the excavations were a bore. This personage was startled as she was startled. He stood there bearing his head to her perceptibly pale surprise. "'Lord Warburton!' Isabel exclaimed as she rose. "'I had no idea it was you. I turned that corner and came upon you.' She looked about her to explain. "'I'm alone, but my companions have just left me. My cousin's gone to look at the work over there.' "'Ah, yes, I see.' And Lord Warburton's eyes wandered vaguely in the direction she had indicated. He stood firmly before her now. He had recovered his balance, and seemed to wish to show it, though very kindly. "'Don't let me disturb you,' he went on, looking at her dejected pillar. "'I'm afraid you're tired.' "'Yes, I'm rather tired.' She hesitated a moment, but sat down again. "'Don't let me interrupt you,' she added. "'Oh, dear, I'm quite alone. I've nothing on earth to do. I had no idea you were in Rome. I've just come from the East. I'm only passing through.' "'You've been making a long journey,' said Isabel, who had learned from Ralph that Lord Warburton was absent from England. "'Yes, I came abroad for six months, soon after I saw you last. I've been in Turkey and Asia Minor. I came the other day from Athens.' He managed not to be awkward, but he wasn't easy, and after a longer look at the girl he came down to nature. "'Do you wish me to leave you, or will you let me stay a little?' She took it all humanely. "'I don't wish you to leave me, Lord Warburton. I'm very glad to see you.' "'Thank you for saying that. May I sit down?' The fluted shaft on which she had taken her seat would have afforded a resting place to several persons, and there was plenty of room even for a highly developed Englishman. This fine specimen of that great class seated himself near our young lady, and in the course of five minutes he had asked her several questions— taken rather at random, and to which, as he put some of them twice over, he apparently somewhat missed catching the answer. Had given her, too, some information about himself which was not wasted upon her calmer feminine sense. He repeated more than once that he had not expected to meet her, and it was evident that the encounter touched him in a way that would have made preparation advisable. He began abruptly to pass from the impunity of things to their solemnity, 
and from their being delightful to their being impossible. He was splendidly sunburnt, even his multitudinous beard had been burnished by the fire of Asia. He was dressed in the loose-fitting, heterogeneous garments in which the English traveller in foreign lands is wont to consult his comfort and affirm his nationality, and with his pleasant, steady eyes, his bronzed complexion, fresh beneath its seasoning, his manly figure, his minimising manner and his general air of being a gentleman and an explorer, he was such a representative of the British race as need not in any clime have been disavowed by those who have a kindness for it. Isabel noted these things, and was glad she had always liked him. He had kept, evidently, in spite of shocks, every one of his merits, properties these partaking of the essence of great decent houses, as one might put it, resembling their innermost fixtures and ornaments, not subject to vulgar shifting and removable only by some whole break-up. They talked of the matters naturally in order, her uncle's death, Ralph's state of health, the way she had passed her winter, her visit to Rome, her return to Florence, her plans for the summer, the hotel she was staying at, and then of Lord Warburton's own adventures, movements, intentions, impressions, and present domicile. At last there was a silence, and it said so much more than either had said that it scarce needed his final words. "'I've written to you several times.' "'Written to me? I've never had your letters.' "'I never sent them. I burned them up.' Ah, laughed Isabel, it was better that you should do that than I. I thought you wouldn't care for them, he went on with a simplicity that touched her. It seemed to me, after all, that I had no right to trouble you with letters. I should have been very glad to have news of you. You know how I hoped that—that—but she stopped. There would be such a flatness in the utterance of her thought. I know what you were going to say. You hoped we should always remain good friends. This formula, as Lord Warburton uttered it, was certainly flat enough, but then he was interested in making it appear so. She found herself reduced simply to, Please don't talk of all that, a speech which hardly struck her as an improvement on the other. It's a small consolation to allow me, her companion exclaimed with force. I can't pretend to console you, said the girl who, all still as she sat there, threw herself back with a sort of inward triumph on the answer that had satisfied him so little six months before. He was pleasant, he was powerful, he was gallant, there was no better man than he. But her answer remained. "'It's very well you don't try to console me. It wouldn't be in your power,' she heard him say through the medium of her strange elation. "'I hoped we should meet again.' because I had no fear you would attempt to make me feel I had wronged you. But when you do that, the pain's greater than the pleasure." And she got up with a small conscious majesty, looking for her companions. "'I don't want to make you feel that. Of course I can't say that. I only just want you to know one or two things, in fairness to myself, as it were. I won't return to the subject again. I felt very strongly what I expressed to you last year. I couldn't think of anything else. I tried to forget, energetically, systematically. I tried to take an interest in somebody else. I tell you this because I want you to know I did my duty. It didn't succeed. It was for the same purpose I went abroad, as far away as possible. They say travelling distracts the mind, but it didn't distract mine. 
I've thought of you perpetually, ever since I last saw you. I'm exactly the same. I love you just as much, and everything I said to you then is just as true. This instant at which I speak to you shows me again exactly how, to my great misfortune, you just insuperably charm me. There, I can't say less. I don't, however, mean to insist. It's only for a moment. I may add that when I came upon you a few minutes since, without the smallest idea of seeing you, I was, upon my honour, in the very act of wishing I knew where you were. He had recovered his self-control, and while he spoke it became complete. He might have been addressing a small committee, making all quietly and clearly a statement of importance, aided by an occasional look at a paper of notes concealed in his hat, which he had not again put on. And the committee, assuredly, would have felt the point proved. "'I've often thought of you, Lord Warburton,' Isabel answered. "'You may be sure I shall always do that.' And she added, in a tone of which she tried to keep up the kindness and keep down the meaning, "'There's no harm in that on either side.' They walked along together, and she was prompt to ask about his sisters, and request him to let them know she had done so. He made for the moment no further reference to their great question, but dipped again into shallower and safer waters. But he wished to know when she was to leave Rome, and on her mentioning the limit of her stay, declared he was glad it was still so distant. "'Why do you say that, if you yourself are only passing through?' she inquired with some anxiety. "'Ah, when I said I was passing through, I didn't mean that one would treat Rome as if it were Clapham Junction. To pass through Rome is to stop a week or two. "'Say frankly that you mean to stay as long as I do.' His flushed smile for a little seemed to sound her. "'You won't like that. You're afraid you'll see too much of me. It doesn't matter what I like. I certainly can't expect you to leave this delightful place on my account. But I confess, I'm afraid of you. Afraid I'll begin again. I promise to be very careful.' They had gradually stopped, and they stood a moment face to face. "'Poor Lord Warburton,' she said, with a compassion intended to be good for both of them. "'Poor Lord Warburton, indeed. But I'll be careful. You may be unhappy, but you shall not make me so. That I can't allow. If I believed I could make you unhappy, I think I should try it.' At this she walked in advance, and he also proceeded. "'I'll never say a word to displease you.' "'Very good.' If you do, our friendship's at an end. Perhaps some day, after a while, you'll give me leave. Give you leave to make me unhappy? He hesitated. To tell you again. But he checked himself. I'll keep it down. I'll keep it down always. Ralph Touchett had been joined in his visit to the excavation by Miss Stackpole and her attendant, and these three now emerged from among the mounds of earth and stone collected round the aperture, and came into sight of Isabel and her companion. Poor Ralph hailed his friend with joy qualified by wonder, and Henrietta exclaimed in a high voice, "'Gracious, there's that lord!' Ralph and his English neighbour greeted with the austerity with which, after long separations, English neighbours greet, and Miss Stackpole rested her large intellectual gaze upon the sunburnt traveller but she soon established her relation to the crisis. "'I don't suppose you remember me, sir?' "'Indeed I do remember you,' said Lord Warburton. "'I asked you to come and see me, and you never came.' 
"'I don't go everywhere I'm asked,' Miss Stackpole answered coldly. "'Ah, well, I won't ask you again,' laughed the master of Lockley. "'If you do, I'll go, so be sure.' Lord Warburton, for all his hilarity, seemed sure enough. Mr. Bantling had stood by without claiming a recognition, but he now took occasion to nod to his lordship, who answered him with a friendly, "'Oh, you here, Bantling?' and a handshake. "'Well,' said Henrietta, "'I didn't know you knew him.' "'I guess you don't know everyone I know,' Mr. Bantling rejoined facetiously. "'I thought that when an Englishman knew a lord he always told you.' "'Ah, I'm afraid Bantling was ashamed of me.' Lord Warburton laughed again. Isabel took pleasure in that note. She gave a small sigh of relief as they kept their course homeward. The next day was Sunday. She spent her morning over two long letters, one to her sister Lily, the other to Madame Merle. But in neither of these epistles did she mention the fact that a rejected suitor had threatened her with another appeal. Of a Sunday afternoon all good Romans, and the best Romans are often the northern barbarians, follow the custom of going to Vespers at St. Peter's, and it had been agreed among our friends that they would drive together to the great church. After lunch, an hour before the carriage came, Lord Warburton presented himself at the Hôtel de Paris and paid a visit to the two ladies, Ralph Touchett and Mr. Bantling having gone out together. The visitor seemed to have wished to give Isabel a proof of his intention to keep the promise made her the evening before. He was both discreet and frank, not even dumbly importunate or remotely intense. He thus left her to judge what a mere good friend he could be. He talked about his travels, about Persia, about Turkey, and when Miss Stackpole asked him whether it would pay for her to visit those countries, assured her they offered a great field to female enterprise. Isabel did him justice, but she wondered what his purpose was, and what he expected to gain even by proving the superior strain of his sincerity. If he expected to melt her by showing what a good fellow he was, he might spare himself the trouble. She knew the superior strain of everything about him, and nothing he could now do was required to light the view. Moreover, his being in Rome at all affected her as a complication of the wrong sort. She liked so complications of the right. Nevertheless, when, on bringing his call to a close, he said he too should be at St. Peter's, and should look out for her and her friends, she was obliged to reply that he must follow his convenience. In the church, as she strolled over its tessellated acres, he was the first person she encountered. She had not been one of the superior tourists who are disappointed in St. Peter's and find it smaller than its fame. The first time she passed beneath the huge leathern curtain that strains and bangs at the entrance, the first time she found herself beneath the far-arching dome and saw the light drizzle down through the air thickened with incense and with the reflections of marble and gilt, of mosaic and bronze, her conception of greatness rose and dizzily rose. After this it never lacked space to soar. She gazed and wondered like a child or a peasant. She paid her silent tribute to the seated sublime. Lord Warburton walked beside her and talked of St. Sophia of Constantinople. She feared, for instance, that he would end by calling attention to his exemplary conduct. The service had not yet begun, but at St. Peter's there is much to observe, and as there is something almost profane in the vastness of the place, which seems meant as much for physical as for spiritual exercise, the different figures and groups, the mingled worshippers and spectators, may follow their various intentions without conflict or scandal. In that splendid immensity, 
individual indiscretion carries but a short distance. Isabel and her companions, however, were guilty of none, for though Henrietta was obliged in candour to declare that Michelangelo's dome suffered by comparison with that of the Capitol at Washington, she addressed her protest chiefly to Mr. Bantling's ear, and reserved it in its more accentuated form for the columns of the interviewer. Isabel made the circuit of the church with his lordship, and as they drew near the choir on the left of the entrance, the voices of the Pope's singers were borne to them over the heads of the large number of persons clustered outside the doors. They paused a while on the skirts of this crowd, composed in equal measure of Roman cockneys and inquisitive strangers, and while they stood there, the sacred concert went forward. Ralph, with Henrietta and Mr. Bantling, was apparently within, where Isabel, looking beyond the dense group in front of her, saw the afternoon light, silvered by clouds of incense that seemed to mingle with the splendid chant, slope through the embossed recesses of high windows. After a while the singing stopped, and then Lord Warburton seemed disposed to move off with her. Isabel could only accompany him, whereupon she found herself confronted with Gilbert Osmond, who appeared to have been standing at a short distance behind her. He now approached with all the forms, he appeared to have multiplied them on this occasion to suit the place. "'So you decided to come?' she said as she put out her hand. "'Yes, I came last night and called this afternoon at your hotel. They told me you would come here, and I looked about for you.' "'The others are inside,' she decided to say. "'I didn't come for the others,' he promptly returned. She looked away. Lord Warburton was watching them. Perhaps he had heard this. Suddenly she remembered it to be just what he had said to her the morning he came to Gardencourt to ask her to marry him. Mr. Osmond's words had brought the colour to her cheek, and this reminiscence had not the effect of dispelling it. She repaired any betrayal by mentioning to each companion the name of the other, and fortunately at this moment Mr. Bantling emerged from the choir, cleaving the crowd with British valour, and followed by Miss Stackpole and Ralph Touchett. I say, fortunately, but this is perhaps a superficial view of the matter, since, on perceiving the gentleman from Florence, Ralph Touchett appeared to take the case as not committing him to joy. He didn't hang back, however, from civility, and presently observed to Isabel, with due benevolence, that she would soon have all her friends about her. Miss Stackpole had met Mr. Osmond in Florence, but she had already found occasion to say to Isabel that she liked him no better than her other admirers, than Mr. Touchett and Lord Warburton, and even than little Mr. Rosier in Paris. "'I don't know what it's in you,' she had been pleased to remark, "'but for a nice girl you do attract the most unusual people. Mr. Goodwood's the only one I've any respect for, and he's just the one you don't appreciate.' "'What's your opinion of St. Peter's?' Mr. Osmond was meanwhile inquiring of our young lady. "'It's very large and very bright,' she contented herself with replying. "'It's too large.' It makes one feel like an atom. Isn't that the right way to feel in the greatest of human temples? She asked, with rather a liking for her phrase. I suppose it's the right way to feel everywhere, when one is nobody. But I like it in a church as little as anywhere else. You ought indeed to be a pope, Isabel exclaimed, remembering something he had referred to in Florence. Ah, I should have enjoyed that, said Gilbert Osmond. Lord Warburton, meanwhile, had joined Ralph Touchett, and the two strolled away together. "'Who's the fellow speaking to Miss Archer?' his lordship demanded. "'His name's Gilbert Osmond. He lives in Florence,' Ralph said. 
What is he besides? Nothing at all. Oh, yes, he's an American, but one forgets that. He's so little of one. Has he known Miss Archer long? Three or four weeks. Does she like him? She's trying to find out. And will she? Find out? Ralph asked. Will she like him? Do you mean will she accept him? Yes, said Lord Warburton after an instant. I suppose that's what I horribly mean. Perhaps not if one does nothing to prevent it, Ralph replied. His lordship stared a moment, but apprehended. Then we must be perfectly quiet. As quiet as the grave, and only on the chance, Ralph added. The chance she may. The chance she may not. Lord Warburton took this at first in silence, but he spoke again. Is he awfully clever? Awfully, said Ralph. His companion thought. And what else? What more do you want? Ralph groaned. Do you mean what more does she? Ralph took him by the arm to turn him. They had to rejoin the others. She wants nothing that we can give her. Ah, well, if she won't have you, said his lordship handsomely as they went. End of chapter 27「On the morrow, in the evening, Lord Warburton went again to see his friends at their hotel, and at this establishment he learned that they had gone to the opera. He drove to the opera with the idea of paying them a visit in their box, after the easy Italian fashion, and when he had obtained his admittance, it was one of the secondary theatres, looked about the large, bare, ill-lighted house. An act had just terminated, and he was at liberty to pursue his quest. After scanning two or three tiers of boxes, he perceived in one of the largest of these receptacles a lady whom he easily recognised. Miss Archer was seated facing the stage, and partly screened by the curtain of the box, and beside her, leaning back in his chair, was Mr. Gilbert Osmond. They appeared to have the place to themselves, and Warburton supposed their companions had taken advantage of the recess to enjoy the relative coolness of the lobby. He stood a while with his eyes on the interesting pair. He asked himself if he should go up and interrupt the harmony. At last he judged that Isabel had seen him, and this accident determined him. There should be no marked holding off. He took his way to the upper regions, and on the staircase met Ralph Touchett slowly descending, his hat at the inclination of ennui, and his hands where they usually were. "'I saw you below a moment since, and was going down to you. I feel lonely and want company,' was Ralph's greeting. "'You've some that's very good, which you've yet deserted. "'Do you mean my cousin? "'Oh, she has a visitor and doesn't want me. "'Then Miss Stackpole and Bantling have gone out to a café to eat an ice. "'Miss Stackpole delights in an ice. "'I didn't think they wanted me either. "'The opera's very bad. "'The women look like laundresses and sing like peacocks. "'I feel very low. "'You had better go home.' Lord Warburton said, without affectation. "'And leave my young lady in this sad place? Ah, no, I must watch over her. She seems to have plenty of friends. 
"'Yes, that's why I must watch,' said Ralph, with the same large mock melancholy. "'If she doesn't want you, it's probable she doesn't want me. "'No, you're different. "'Go to the box and stay there while I walk about.' Lord Warburton went to the box, where Isabel's welcome was as to a friend so honourably old that he vaguely asked himself what queer temporal province she was annexing. He exchanged greetings with Mr. Osmond, to whom he had been introduced the day before, and who, after he came in, sat blandly apart and silent, as if repudiating competence in the subjects of illusion now probable. It struck her second visitor that Miss Archer had, in operatic conditions, a radiance, even a slight exaltation. As she was, however, at all times a keenly glancing, quickly moving, completely animated young woman, he may have been mistaken on this point. Her talk with him, moreover, pointed to presence of mind. It expressed a kindness so ingenious and deliberate as to indicate that she was in undisturbed possession of her faculties. Poor Lord Warburton had moments of bewilderment. She had discouraged him, formally, as much as a woman could. What business had she, then, with such arts and such felicities, above all with such tones of reparation, preparation? Her voice had tricks of sweetness, but why play them on him? The others came back. The bare, familiar, trivial opera began again. The box was large, and there was room for him to remain if he would sit a little behind and in the dark. He did so for half an hour, while Mr. Osmond remained in front, leaning forward, his elbows on his knees, just behind Isabel. Lord Warburton heard nothing, and from his gloomy corner saw nothing but the clear profile of this young lady defined against the dim illumination of the house. When there was another interval no one moved. Mr. Osmond talked to Isabel, and Lord Warburton kept his corner. He did so but for a short time, however, after which he got up and bade good-night to the ladies. Isabel said nothing to detain him, but it didn't prevent his being puzzled again. Why should she mark so one of his values, quite the wrong one, when she would have nothing to do with another, which was quite the right? He was angry with himself for being puzzled, and then angry for being angry. Verdi's music did little to comfort him, and he left the theatre and walked homeward, without knowing his way, through the tortuous, tragic streets of Rome, where heavier sorrows than his had been carried under the stars. "'What's the character of that gentleman?' Osmond asked of Isabel after he had retired. "'Irreproachable. Don't you see it?' "'He owns about half England. That's his character,' Henrietta remarked. "'That's what they call a free country.' "'Ah, he's a great proprietor. Happy man,' said Gilbert Osmond. "'Do you call that happiness, the ownership of wretched human beings?' cried Miss Stackpole. He owns his tenants and has thousands of them. It's pleasant to own something, but inanimate objects are enough for me. I don't insist on flesh and blood and minds and consciences. It seems to me you own a human being or two, Mr. Bantling suggested jocosely. I wonder if Warburton orders his tenants about as you do me. Lord Warburton's a great radical, Isabel said. He has very advanced opinions. He has very advanced stone walls. His park's enclosed by a gigantic iron fence some thirty miles round, Henrietta announced for the information of Mr. Osmond. I should like him to converse with a few of our Boston radicals. 
"'Don't they approve of iron fences?' asked Mr. Bantling. "'Only to shut up wicked conservatives. "'I always feel as if I were talking to you over something with a neat top finish of broken glass. "'Do you know him well, this unreformed reformer?' Osmond went on, questioning Isabel. "'Well enough, for all the use I have for him.' "'And how much of a use is that?' "'Well, I like to like him.' liking to like why it makes a passion said osmond no she considered keep that for liking to dislike do you wish to provoke me then osmond laughed to a passion for him she said nothing for a moment but then met the light question with a disproportionate gravity no mr osmond i don't think i should ever dare to provoke you lord warburton at any rate she more easily added, is a very nice man. "'Of great ability?' her friend inquired. "'Of excellent ability, and as good as he looks.' "'As good as he's good-looking, do you mean? He's very good-looking. How detestably fortunate! To be a great English magnate, to be clever and handsome into the bargain, and by way of finishing off to enjoy your high favour. That's a man I could envy.' Isabel considered him with interest. "'You seem to me to be always envying someone. Yesterday it was the Pope, today it's poor Lord Warburton.' "'My envy's not dangerous. It wouldn't hurt a mouse. I don't want to destroy the people. I only want to be them. You see it would destroy only myself.' "'You'd like to be the Pope,' said Isabel. "'I should love it. But I should have gone in for it earlier. But why?' Osmond reverted. Do you speak of your friend as poor? Women, when they are very, very good, sometimes pity men after they've hurt them. That's their great way of showing kindness, said Ralph, joining in the conversation for the first time, and with a cynicism so transparently ingenious as to be virtually innocent. Pray, have I hurt Lord Warburton? Isabel asked, raising her eyebrows, as if the idea were perfectly fresh. "'It serves him right if you have,' said Henrietta, while the curtain rose for the ballet. Isabel saw no more of her attributive victim for the next twenty-four hours, but on the second day after the visit to the opera she encountered him in the gallery of the Capitol, where he stood before the lion of the collection, the statue of the dying gladiator. She had come in with her companions, among whom on this occasion again Gilbert Osmond had his place, and the party— having ascended the staircase, entered the first and finest of the rooms. Lord Warburton addressed her alertly enough, but said in a moment that he was leaving the gallery. "'And I'm leaving Rome,' he added. "'I must bid you good-bye.' Isabel, inconsequently enough, was now sorry to hear it. This was perhaps because she had ceased to be afraid of his renewing his suit. She was thinking of something else. She was on the point of naming her regret— but she checked herself and simply wished him a happy journey, which made him look at her rather unlightedly. "'I'm afraid you'll think me very volatile. I told you the other day I wanted so much to stop.' "'Oh, no, you could easily change your mind.' "'That's what I have done.' "'Bon voyage, then.' "'You're in a great hurry to get rid of me,' said his lordship quite dismally. "'Not in the least, but I hate partings.' "'You don't care what I do.' he went on pitifully. 
Isabel looked at him a moment. Ah, she said, you're not keeping your promise. He coloured like a boy of fifteen. If I'm not, then it's because I can't, and that's why I'm going. Goodbye, then. Goodbye. He lingered still, however. When shall I see you again? Isabel hesitated, but soon, as if she had had a happy inspiration. Some day, after you're married. That will never be. It will be after you are. That will do as well, she smiled. Yes, quite as well. Goodbye. They shook hands, and he left her alone in the glorious room, among the shining antique marbles. She sat down in the centre of the circle of these presences, regarding them vaguely, resting her eyes on their beautiful blank faces, listening, as it were, to their eternal silence. It is impossible, in Rome at least, to look long at a great company of Greek sculptures without feeling the effect of their noble quietude, which, as with a high door closed for the ceremony, slowly drops on the spirit the large white mantle of peace. I say in Rome especially, because the Roman air is an exquisite medium for such impressions. The golden sunshine mingles with them, the deep stillness of the past, so vivid yet, though it is nothing but a void full of names, seems to throw a solemn spell upon them. The blinds were partly closed in the windows of the capital, and a clear warm shadow rested on the figures and made them more mildly human. Isabel sat there a long time, under the charm of their motionless grace, wondering to what, of their experience, their absent eyes were open, and how, to our ears, their alien lips would sound. The dark red walls of the room threw them into relief, the polished marble floor reflected their beauty. She had seen them all before, but her enjoyment repeated itself, and it was all the greater because she was glad again, for the time, to be alone. At last, however, her attention lapsed, drawn off by a deeper tide of life. An occasional tourist came in, stopped and stared a moment at the dying gladiator, and then passed out of the other door, creaking over the smooth pavement. At the end of half an hour, Gilbert Osmond reappeared, apparently in advance of his companions. He strolled toward her slowly, with his hands behind him, and his usual inquiring, yet not quite appealing, smile. "'I'm surprised to find you alone. I thought you had company.' "'So I have. The best.' And she glanced at the Antinous and the fawn. "'Do you call them better company than an English peer?' "'Ah, my English peer left me some time ago.' She got up, speaking with intention a little dryly. Mr. Osmond noted her dryness, which contributed for him to the interest of his question. "'I'm afraid that what I heard the other evening is true. You're rather cruel to that nobleman.' Isabel looked a moment at the vanquished gladiator. "'It's not true. I'm scrupulously kind.' "'That's exactly what I meant,' Gilbert Osmond returned, and with such happy hilarity that his joke needs to be explained. We know that he was fond of originals, of rarities, of the superior and the exquisite. And now that he had seen Lord Warburton, whom he thought a very fine example of his race and order, he perceived a new attraction in the idea of taking to himself a young lady who had qualified herself to figure in his collection of choice objects 
by declining so noble a hand. Gilbert Osmond had a high appreciation of this particular patriciate, not so much for its distinction, which he thought easily surpassable, as for its solid actuality. He had never forgiven his star for not appointing him to an English dukedom, and he could measure the unexpectedness of such conduct as Isabel's. It would be proper that the woman he might marry should have done something of that sort. End of chapter 28「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.